people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. to work. What's wrong? Uh, it's one of those days. And every day he wonders what is happening to him. Maybe it's the pressure, Jake. They're like demons, Jess. They weren't human. What were they, Jake? Let me look at your hand. You have a very strange line. See, according to this, you're already dead. <laughs> Something's wrong, Jake. They're coming after me. I don't know who they are or what they are, but they're going to get me, and I'm scared, Jake. I've seen them, too. Maybe the demons are real. He's running 106 feet. This is barbaric. I can get rid of the demons. Who are you? I can block the ladder. Where are you taking me? Where do you want to go? Home. This is your home. You're dead. I'm not dead. What are you then? I'm alive. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. Don't bury me. I'm not dead. Wrong loose. I couldn't find a good one. Oh, jeez. <laughs> also back in the booth is Mr. Yaniv Edelstein. Who completely forgot about the vanity intro, but hi, folks. <laughs> and this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are looking at Adrian Lyons' 1990 film, Jacob's Ladder. It's the story of Jacob Singer, played by Tim Robbins, whose platoon in Vietnam is attacked by unknown forces. He suffers from flashbacks of this horrific event in the 1970s New York, where he's left his wife and is living with his co-worker Jezebel, played by Elizabeth Pena. He is plagued as well by horrific visions of demons. Is Jacob going mad? Is he a victim of a government plot? Or is it something else entirely? Of course, we are going to be answering those questions, ruining this movie for people who haven't seen it before. You have been warned. So, Stephen, when was the first time you saw Jacob's Ladder, and what did you think? Yeah, I was definitely aware this movie was coming out. I was going to the movies a lot during that time period. I saw the teaser trailer, which was very interesting, and I was a huge horror fan, so I was excited for it. It was in Fangoria. I couldn't talk my friend into seeing it, so we went to see Marked for Death instead. But after Marked for Death, I managed to sneak in for a couple of minutes waiting for my ride. And then I'd eventually watched it on VHS when it came out and I, I loved it. And then like a year later, it came on Showtime and they showed these deleted scenes. They had this whole half hour special after it premiered 
and had the deleted scenes and interviews. And that was the first time I've ever experienced anything like that in like 1991. There was no, I didn't have a laser display or anything. And you know, and it was interesting is I left the movie off there and I didn't return back to it until like maybe 10 years ago. It was the fifth movie in a six movie marathon. And seeing it on the big screen, that's when I really understood it and I got it, you know, knowing the ending and being able to pay attention to it. And it completely blew my mind more as an adult. As a kid, I liked it because I liked horror and it felt and I liked adult horror as a kid when they put real stars in horror movies, you know, calling them thrillers. But as an adult, that's when it really emotionally hit me and I was able to really concentrate on it. And Yaniv, how about yourself? I'm the newcomer. I just watched it a week and a half ago or something. And I was very pleasantly surprised how well it aged. It was fucking scary. It was a nightmare, like a non-ending nightmare of like endless unfolding horrors. It looked great. The practical effects are all fantastic. And the fact that you only get really tiny glimpses of really horrifying things all the time. So really fantastic direction. I think I'm a new sort of convert to Adrian Lyon, who was not a guy I considered like a like I'm I'm very impressed by his work. Really impressively done, like very meticulous and super scary and super creepy. And just today I watched those deleted scenes today and uh, even just those by themselves are fantastic scenes. You're used to seeing deleted scenes that like a sort of half sort of thrown together. But this scene, this deleted scene with this horrifying ceiling demon was completely fucking nuts. What a beautiful sort of insane um, horror ride, like ghost ride. Yeah, you are a latecomer to this, but I am quickly behind you. I didn't see this until maybe about six months ago. I remember maybe I saw it when I was working at the movie theater because 1990 would have been when I was working at the Star Theater down in Taylor, Michigan. I would do a lot of aisle checks, which is where you go in and you're looking for like, you know, people lighting up or being loud or putting their feet on the seats. And basically as an usher, you're making just above minimum wage. So all you do is you stand in the back, you kind of look around a little bit, see if there's anybody smoking and otherwise you're just watching the movie for a little while. So as I watched this, I was like, okay, yeah, this is familiar. I don't think I had ever seen this before. This was such an unusual film for Adrian line to do because at this point he had done flash dance nine and a half weeks fatal attraction he would go on to do indecent proposal lolita and it was so it was all these like kind of erotic thriller type of things like fatal attraction definitely indecent proposal kind of that was just such a strange strange movie and then jacob's ladder right in the middle of this and it's like okay this is a this is an interesting thing and this is the same year 1990 that ghost is coming out written by the same guy written by bruce joel rubin and so you're kind of getting like two sides of the same coin between these like spiritual movies where you have your main characters are dead, but they don't let you know that your main character is dead in Jacob's Ladder until pretty much the very end of the film. So this is one of those puzzle films that presages things like The Sixth Sense, though it comes after things such as Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge or Carnival of Souls, where your main character is going through a whole lot of shit and not realizing why he's going through it is that he's been dead all along. I had the ending spoiled for me just by general pop culture. I don't know that somebody spoiled it for me. It's just 
it became kind of known that this, that this is the movie where where it's the incident outbreak bridge kind of thing in the movie. But actually, it wasn't that bad that it was spoiled because it's not like the sixth sense in the sense that the sixth sense completely hinges just on the reveal at the end, and there's an, it's just you're just killing time hoping for a twist at the end. This movie have knowing that the twist doesn't ruin it at all because it's a very, such a specific house of horrors that uh, just knowing that and besides i think a, a viewer with our sensibilities in 2023 we're sh- like shrewd enough to realize it anyway right at the beginning you know he's on a he wakes up on a subway car and it says hell on in an ad and it's a little bit i mean for today it's a bit on the nose it wasn't for the time it's not a cheesy movie most of most of it aged super well for me it's a detail the fact that he's dead is, is a detail because he a lot of it is open to interpretation, so it doesn't ruin it. Now I hear, yeah, the, it was funny enough, was the ending was spoiled for me too when I was a kid because someone on my block, I believe, saw it and he was just like, that movie's so stupid. The whole thing is just a dream and he's dead. And I was like, oh man. So when I, I never got to experience it the way, you know, either, you know, it kind of bummed me out. But like I said, you know, as I saw it later on, knowing that in the back of my head and watching it, there's so much to digest. There's so many clues. And like you said, the opening subway thing wasn't something I noticed when I was a kid until I saw it later. It's like, you know, immediately you have the health thing. And then if you really look closely and pause it, there's also a thing about drugs in there and the saying that alludes to later on. And the same thing with the other sign, it's the big apple and the apple being a religious thing also, religious symbolism. And then there's also the word die in that billboard too on the train. And then also there's another symbol thing on the train, which is when he sees the homeless man above him is a sign that talks about um, the baby is dying in 3B, you know? And it's like, again, foreshadowing his son. Like, it's so brilliant, these little things peppered into this movie as you're re-watching it knowing the ending but i like even before that when we've got the scene of vietnam and you've got the helicopters going and they've got one of them has like a like a stretcher underneath it or like cargo underneath it and that's going to basically be him in a little bit like he's going to be airlifted out of there after he gets stabbed in the guts by one of his fellow soldiers and just that scene itself is so terrifying where you've got the guys, and they're just around, you know, bullshitting, making fun of each other. And it's so interesting to see, like, young Ving Rames, young uh, Prue Taylor Vince, young Eric LaSalle, just all of these very familiar faces. And out of nowhere, they just start having these fits. And the one guy who just starts spinning around like a dervish, and you've got the other guy who's, like, slams down on the ground. He's having all these convulsions. And you're like, what the hell is happening? And then it's suddenly like a firefight breaks out and it's just mass confusion. I love the way that he shoots this as well with his handheld camera, just running through all of this. And, you know, like 1990, we're pretty inured to Vietnam films. It's just like, oh, okay. And then when we quote unquote have, you know, show that it's a flashback, but it's actually not. When he wakes up on that subway car, it's like, oh boy, here's another story about you know, a crazy veteran or a veteran who had a whole lot of problems and he's brought those back with him to now. And even when the movie starts, I'm just like, is this 1990? You know, is this the year that the movie's coming out? But then later on, it's like, oh, you, we haven't talked to each other in like five, six years. And they very specifically say 
this is 1970 at the beginning. So I'm like, oh, this is a period piece, but it takes me a long time because they don't really just like ham it up with like disco music and trappings of 1970s. You don't see, you don't see like Nixon or Ford on the TV. You see Orson Bean on the TV on like a re, well, I thought it was a rerun, but it was probably a first time airing of To Tell the Truth. And it's like, oh, okay. So this is mid 70s, but line is really nice to not just like beat you over the head with it no dude you're so right about that because for years i thought the movie was taking place in the time it came out and then eventually i found this note that adrian oh it's in like um there was a screenplay book of jacob's ladder yeah and in it uh, there's a note from adrian lynn to his like crew just kind of saying like yo this movie is set in 1975 Brooklyn, you know? And then, for example, if the New York Knicks won the championship in 1975, we should not mention it because Jacob would not be able to know that, you know? So he put out this note to, like, let the cast and crew know that, you know, you know, and, like, the song they use in that one dance sequence, like, everything he had a... It's such a tiny detail, but no one ever catches it either, but it is there. Well, I guess I'm smarter than you guys, because I figured it out, and I didn't even think of the five-year thing. I just... I could tell that it's the 70s just because of all the cars and stuff. I mean, you could... As soon as he comes out of the subway, even the subway itself is sort of really filthy, and... But especially when he comes out, you can see all the cars from the 70s, and, and it's, like, older, dirtier in New York. But I guess, I guess, yeah. I mean, if you really want to go down that road, then I guess if he died in 70, then it has to be 75 as imagined by a person who died in 70. You could have like, whatever, like wrong details anyway. Like you said, he wouldn't know about the Knicks. But they didn't bother with that too much. They're just like really filthy and, and all the cars are really old and, uh, and New York City's going bankrupt and there's rats everywhere, which is just better for the story anyhow. I mean, it was written in 1980s. But it feels like it was a 70s movie, you know, they made, it's like a 70s movie that was made in, you know, that was shot in 1989, you know, and so thank God New York still had that grime and grit to it, production value when they shot it. On one hand, it's that, but on the other hand, it's also pretty modern, but I think it's like, I'm not sure if it could have been A, financed and B, made if it weren't for like David Lynch, I think the fact that Blue Velvet had existed and was a hit then something like this could get financed because it's incredibly weird and it's a big budget sort of production for this kind of thing. When you think about it, they could have made the plot so that it was just a normal Viet Cong clash type situation and then all the crazy insane stuff is all happening in his head and was just a normal fight, but they didn't do that. They made even the circumstances of the bloodbath be very weird and out there because in, in movies like this, if you think like Wizard of Oz, you know, at the edge, it goes back, it was all a dream and everybody's nice and everything's fine and it gives you the sense of, but this is so much more unsettling that even the framing device of the insanity is by itself also insane uh, of this bizarre, it turns out to be this drug experiment and uh, how could he know it is a drug experiment? It's like everything in this movie, I mean, I can see your neighbor's uh, frustration with like everything is a lie i mean everything is just being completely made up even even though they have that title card at the end about this drug bz was that really the case or not i who knows he shouldn't know any of that stuff in his head that, that's it's weird a, that's the only thing that didn't sit well with me is that weird title card to sort of break away and let the audience know something about this drug experiment which i don't understand that's the only part that i don't get i i didn't either and that's something that drove me crazy too is like where did this is this imagined B story come through? I mean, he must have 
had fooled around with LSD to, you know, Jacob himself for it to be, but he seems like very clean laced not to have done that. But I think it's the ending when he does see that he was killed by his own soldier is what for me locks it in that it's all true. Because, but that was something that was driving me crazy for a while too. Is like, where did this? This is the one thing that doesn't make sense for me. But then I think that's really the cap of is seeing that dude. The thing I always heard, like growing up in the you know the eighties and stuff. I mean, Nancy Reagan and her whole war on drugs was just insane. Like the the just say no campaign was fucking everywhere. It's like you know you open up. A- freaking candy bar and there's like a don't say no message in there or don't say yes or, or just say no there it is just there say you no go. message inside of there terrible message and you still can't get it straight yeah yeah <laughs> you would hear those horror stories of like oh yeah don't do lsd because you know stays in your system forever you could like crack your back and then all of a sudden you have a flashback and you, know, you might freak out and jump off a building or something so when he goes to his chiropractor louis the daniello character and he gets an adjustment at one point, he gets a good old crack, and then boom, it's like Vietnam flashback. And I was like, oh, there you go. But it's like, no, no, now he's actually going from dream to reality. You know, and I love the way that they flip that and make the Vietnam stuff feel like a flashback, but it's always the present time. And the way this movie plays out, I mean, basically it could be playing out in real time between the time he gets stabbed and the time he dies. It could be just less than two hours worth of time here. Oh, yeah. And especially if you've done LSD, the time that goes by when you look at your watch, like, holy shit, that's only been 10 minutes. I thought this has been 40 minutes, you know, because just the fact that poor guy is dying, he's not only dying and in, in going through like purgatory, but he's also on the most extreme LSD government related LSD trip ever combining both of those. Of course he's seeing demons and shit. There is basis in fact with government experimenting on its own soldiers. And so I'm like, okay, well this isn't too far out of the realm of possibilities. I mean, the whole MK ultra thing. I mean, what the, uh, uh, the experiments that the government did on, black people with sickle cell anemia and all this. And it's just like, oh, okay. So like the BZ title card at the end, I was like, all right, I guess this is kind of like saying, hey, yeah, there were really experiments, but then it's just so weird to put it on a fiction film. It feels almost like lip service. I think maybe the studio forced it on them or maybe some kind of focus group thing or or something. Like it, it just doesn't sit right. You're right. I was surprised that BZ is even a real thing it would make more sense if it were at least a, a made-up drug, but it's actually a thing from reality. So what's the what's the point even? It's so bizarre. Yeah, I think the writer had an experience with LSD, like where he took it once and it didn't have an effect. And I think it's his roommate had an eyedropper of it. And instead of giving him one drop, he gave him like the whole entire dropper full of it. And he had this intense trip out. So I guess him being very influenced by the drug itself is probably why it's so intertwined in this script. Uh, that goes back to that deleted scene with Antidote where he has a dropper and he gives him one drop and then he forces the whole thing on him. And then that was the thing. When I saw this movie years later at that screening, I was waiting for that scene to happen and it never happened. And for me, that's like one of the, I mean, I just, I wish there was an alternative cut to this movie that had that scene in it and then had another deleted scene with Jesse transforming at the ending. I think those two scenes, I don't know, we can get to that later, but. I, I was so bummed that scene wasn't in the movie when I came back to watch it later because 
there are these definite two set pieces that people don't forget that we'll probably get into. But for me, that was like the third one that was like one of the ones that was so memorable to me. Well, it is really interesting, the whole timeline too, when it comes to him and his wife, Sarah, or ex-wife. And it's like, are they not together in just the the dream that he's having or did they break up before he went to vietnam because there's this whole thing about his son gabriel dying and i'm guessing i'm thinking that he must have died before jacob went to vietnam and we have all of these flashes too and that's another mystery throughout the entire film is how did he pass away how did gabriel pass away and you get all these little flashes of like when he's in the hospital, he sees this bicycle and you get just like these little moments of him talking with Gabriel or like flashing back to Gabriel. So it's like flashbacks within his flash forward, almost inside of his dream, which is great. And there's that moment. So he's like kind of living his life with Jezebel and we don't really know where she stands. Like she seems nice most of the time, but when he wakes up, with her and she has these pictures and he gets really maudlin about these pictures of Sarah and his kids and all this. And especially when he sees Gabriel and uh, who's played by a very young Macaulay Culkin. And then when she takes the photos and throws them away, I'm just like, man, that's the worst thing to do. <laughs> She's just like, I don't want to see you sad. I don't want these pictures making you sad. I'm just like, what a horrible person you are. And that's like, I really start to doubt her intentions, but then it, like, I forgive her fairly easily through this. I, I don't know if it's because Elizabeth, Elizabeth Pena is so charming or what, but yeah, we're supposed to think throughout this whole thing, like maybe she doesn't have his best interests in mind. Right. But also if it goes back to this thing with Danny Aiello, who's this very angelic character, right? And he says, if you're frightened of dying, you'll see devils tearing you apart. If you've made your peace, then there are angels freeing you from the world. Right. So in that sense, Jezebel burning the pictures, Jesse burning the pictures is an angel freeing him from the world and helping him to pass on. In the sense, in that sense, it's more of a purgatory narrative than a hell narrative. I like it better that Jezebel or Jesse isn't exposed as a demon because I think also I like it more where it stays mysterious. I also love the scene of of it going down. It's like an incinerator, fire, and I kind of like the idea of the fire underneath where he's living with her too. I, I just love that whole <laughs> visual. Yeah, there's a lot of going upstairs, coming downstairs. There's even the elevator at the beginning. And I love that shot inside the elevator with all the pennies inside of like this grating that there is. Because there's another moment later on in the film where it's him and Pruitt Taylor Vince and they're out on the street and he sees a coin on the street. And I was just like, oh, that's kind of a little cool callback. And I don't know if that's putting coins over the eyes of the dead type of thing to pay the ferryman to take you to the afterlife or what that is. But then I also like how he, you know, he sees that coin on the street. It's like, oh, it's my lucky day. And then that coin basically blown away. And the next time we cut down to the ground, we have Pruitt Taylor Vince's, I guess it's like a St. Christopher medal. So it almost gets replaced from coin to metal like that. And I thought that was kind of a, a nice way of, you know, just showing that. And then also just how long it takes for that explosion to happen for Pruitt Taylor Vince to be blown up. And that plays into this whole other thing that we have going on in the movie, which is the series of assassinations and this like government conspiracy cover up of all these secret men 
taking him and throwing him in a car or trying to run him down on the street and what is going on with this? And we even have like a cover up with Jason Alexander later on. It's just like he really they do a great job of wrong footing you in this movie. It's like, no, this is actually a you know, guy fantasizing about, you know, his his afterlife about death type of thing. But then it's like all of these adventures that he's imagining in his head. Yeah, totally. I love him saying it's my lucky day and going for that coin. It's and it, it's almost like it fly. I always saw it as it's flying off screen towards the car for some reason. And I think you nail it with, with the ferryman thing where it's like, that's the coin to pay the ferryman for him to go. I My, my theory is, is that him and all of these other, all of his other vets, they're all in the same purgatory as him. But that, that moment that was his time to go is when that happened. That was my, that's my theory on it. For me, the less it's explained, I, I just like it. I mean, the, the part with all the veterans joining together to maybe, what, hire Jason Alexander and, and <laughs> prosecute the, the, sue the, the Marine Corps or something. It's the only like semblance of like a generic plot that this movie has. But even that feels very off, very weird, and isn't resolved in a traditional way, which is great. The less, and also one of the the other deleted scene with the antidote also puts a button on the whole. There's an antidote, there's a chemist. I mean, the chemist is still in the movie, but the antidote. And, you know, I could take or leave that part. The more surreal it was, the more I enjoyed it. Because it's very weird now without those deleted scenes when, when the chemist comes in and explains everything to him. Because it's like the chemist explains everything to him and then he takes a cab and goes home and then it's, you know, the doorman greeting him and he goes upstairs and he goes in to the light. And it's like, it's like a solid, after the guy, after the chemist tells him the story, it's almost like 15, 20 minutes more of movie left where nothing else, you know, crazy happens, you know, it's just his acceptance. But the antidote scene I like because it was just like, hey, here's your antidote. And then he has this intense sequence. Like I said, it's burned in my head forever. And then, of course, it doesn't work. And then he has the confrontation, the final confrontation with, with Jesse. And when he's looking at himself, and I kind of like all that, that leads him to his son going up the stairs. Like I said, I wish there was an alternative cut I could watch with those deleted scenes. But I guess there was like a lot of stuff, even more than those deleted scenes shot. There was a making of this movie that that I, I saw and there was like a scene that takes place in a, a bathroom stall in the beginning with two men that was cut out of the movie. Also, Adrian Lynn said there is the death scene of the chemist that was cut out of the movie where he goes back to see him after the antidote doesn't work and they find his head, his severed head. I mean, I'm happy. Maybe I don't need all that stuff, you know, <laughs> but, and I think there's one more scene. Yeah. There's like a bathroom stall scene with a glory hole that was also cut after he does the antidote. But I don't know. I just think the ending now, knowing the deleted scenes, it ends so strange for me. It's just like you can see that I can see it now. I couldn't see it earlier on. I'm surprised there's not a fan edit of this with those scenes put back in just because it would be very easy to do that. But in my searches, I was not able to find anything like that. But I'm glad that they keep all of that stuff on the DVD or the Blu-ray just so that if somebody wants to do that, they could because, you know, they are pretty easy to put in. And yeah, that, that script book that's out there, the Bruce Schulman book, fantastic. And I really like how not only does he include, you know, the, the scenes that were cut out because there's a whole thing of like, um, 
I want to say one of his mentors, one of his philosophy mentors that he goes back to and talks with, and that character is completely cut out as well. So you just get to see all of these different aspects of the story that were eliminated between script and screen. And even those things that you're talking about where it's, you know, things that were shot that just aren't even on the deleted scenes. Yeah, I would love to see all that stuff. Like there's more like hell of the battle too in there as well deleted. And I like the scene with the professor. I get while it's not in the movie, but the purpose of that scene is you're supposed to see how brilliant Jacob's mind is and how he does fear (laughs) the demons. And, you know, it was like a whole scene kind of to set him up a little bit more. He's almost hiding in this movie when he is being shown as a postal worker. And it's like, you have a PhD in philosophy and you should probably be working in a much more of an academic setting. But no, he is, he kind of exchanges one uniform from Vietnam into another uniform as the postal agent. And I don't know if we're supposed to get this whole thing of like messages and delivering messages because he keeps getting messages, but he doesn't really know what to do with them. Like woman at the party who reads his palm and is like, oh, you're dead. You're dead, honey. He just keeps being told like, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead. And then he just keeps asking, am I alive? Am I dead? What's going on? And they're subtle, but sometimes they're not so subtle. Like even, you know, Lewis Black as his doctor after he has that whole thing where he goes into that massive fever and he's just like, hey, you must have friends in very high places. And it's like, okay, yeah, <laughs> we are definitely talking heaven and hell here quite a bit, but I'm glad we're not talking real Judeo-Christian, like the imagery and stuff. We get some of that in some of the books that he's looking at, but I like that line was more like, oh no, this is more natural. Like the the nurse at the hospital has those little protuberances at the top of her head that look like bones sticking out. And it's like, well, that doesn't look like, kind of looks like a horn, but it's not like traditional, you know, little devil type horns coming out of her head. I never knew that was supposed to be a horn until I looked at the script. It looked like a terrible injury, like some sort of weird skull fragment. I think a lot of it makes sense to me as a guy who's shell-shocked in Vietnam and and sees horrible corpses all all over the place and the cars blowing up as well. Like like anything could be rigged to explode. So you just it's just a horrible PTSD experience. Yeah, it, it resonated with me more than all the religious stuff. You know, Mike's Mike's line to it, he asked, does anybody want to come on this podcast and and talk about the Old Testament ramifications of this movie and him? I hope we're not going there. I don't know either. But it was a bit over the top with all the character names being biblical names. I just love biblical names. If I had another little boy, I would name him Jason Caleb or Tab. Super over the top, yeah. Because you guys haven't even mentioned, we've talked about the chemist, but his name's Michael. And it's like, okay, we get yeah, Michael, Gabriel, Sarah... Jezebel. Yeah, Jezzy is by far the biggest. Like, it's so over the top. Like, well, yeah. And like with Jacob from the Bible, I mean, he had a few things going on. Not only did he have that dream of the ladder where he saw figures going up and coming down. So, this whole ascension, descension thing. But then also, Jacob is the one that wrestled either an angel or God. They don't really make it clear. And there's that whole thing where he like hurts the, the, the other person, hurts his hip. And so then when Louie is like, oh, I got to adjust your hip here. And I'm like, okay, yeah. Got an old injury there from fighting with God. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I, I didn't know that. That's pretty... No, me neither. There was another small little detail. It's not biblical, but it was very interesting that both when he meets Patha Merkerson on the steps, who was going to read his palm, and also with Daniel Yellow, 
she she says to him, "Give me your right hand," and he gives her his left hand, and he says, "No, your right hand." And also with the him, he says, "You left and right." I think unless I got it wrong, in one of the Daniel sequences, he says to him, "Turn left," and he turns left, and Daniel says, "No, left." So he turns to the other way, and it's actually wrong. It's like mess it with your mind as the viewer. But I think I heard somewhere that in dreams uh, you can't tell left from right. Is that is that right? I didn't know that. Wow. I seem to recall that. That that in dreams you can't tell left from right. So I so I think it's I don't like it that it's just purgatory or just hell. It could also be a dream. It could be different things. The part where he's told that he's dead could also be part of a dream. I mean, we can all have our different interpretations. There is a scene in the opening where after the subway scene, as Mike brought up the elevator scene with the coins, he goes home and he takes a shower and, and Jazz jumps in the shower with him. And then when it cuts back to Nam. There's like rain dripping on his face. So it makes sense he's in a shower because he's just been rained on outside. And then the same thing with the car explosion, because I'm thinking, oh, yeah, he must. There's always explosions going around him. And that like also seeped in. But it was also in the original script when the car explodes, what's happening. He's in the chopper and they're getting attacked like there's bombs going off. And I thought that was kind of interesting. So I'm so grateful that Adrian and I took this approach where he let these different interpretations coexist and didn't really hit us over the head with the hammer. It's so much better this way. He nailed it because the original concept was, Bruce Joel Rubin said, is my original idea was for a 20th century man to be attacked by medieval creatures. And Lynn came in and kind of scrapped that and made it more like flesh-based, you know, <laughs> took, you know, and I think originally, I believe, was it Ridley Scott was attached? And I think that was one of the things he was into, but it's interesting if he would have made Jacob's Ladder, he was supposed to make it around the time he did Legend. So it would have been weird for him to do the, the ultimate devil in Legend and then do Jacob's Ladder because <laughs> the, 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 you know, the script, the, the creatures are more, they're, they're demonic creatures. They're not flesh-based as Lynn said. But I think he, yeah, what he did with it was was so incredible to shift the movie in that direction. The way that the demon effects are in this, I mean, it's these kind of weird masks or this effect that he's doing where he's got people moving their heads at a probably a regular rate, but he's shooting at, what, four frames a second or something so that they're moving incredibly fast. It's like they're out of sync with the world. I really like that. And when Jacob sees those, in the back of the subway or in the cars that the car that's trying to run them down or at the party that I was just talking about. There's just like all of these little moments where it's like, wow. And they just, they're really super freaky. We're the one at the, uh, the hospital after he gets uh, thrown out of the car and robbed by Santa Claus when he goes to the hospital and there's the guy who doesn't, I don't think he has any legs and he just, his head is doing that thing. It's like, man, this is super freaky. Or the guy who's got no eyes that shoots him right in his third eye. And all those people at the hospital are just like, no, no, you're dead. It's like, wow. All right. And this, that massive contraption that he's in that they kind of spin him around and poke him right there in his third eye the guy in the hospital i thought he was ving rames going through his own personal hell because it's a kind of a built black gentleman he's got and he's in like a, a johnny got his gun situation going through his own purgatory in there that he sees because he does see the bike limbless people which he's dealing with in war which we also see in the beginning like during the attack guys with you know losing their arms and stuff so I, there's yeah and i love that i love that 
contraption they put him in. Because I think then Danny Aiello comes in and he's like, you know, what is this medieval barbaric you know, thing you're putting him in? And uh, yeah, he says like, why don't you just burn him at the stake and put him out of his misery? Again, telling the, you know, it's so brilliant. Or you get that moment at the party where basically it's like a demon having sex with Jezebel and the horn that pops out of her mouth. It's like, holy shit, <laughs> what is going on here? That was fucking nuts. And the strobe effect, it's, this isn't the movie for, for epileptics, for sure. But it was so fucking effective. Like he could, it's, it's one of those rare things where you see practical effects that are so much better than anything ever done with CGI. It just works so, it's so fucking scary and weirdly sexy and everything. And also the, the, the choice of music, like James, putting James Brown as a, as a, like for the soundtrack of a like horrifying horror scene, it's so weird. It's not scary music at all it's not even creepy or anything it's just f funky i don't know if it's if it's kind of a weird weird we have a british director like i think it's only a british director would would put james brown on the background of that scene no dude the, the music choice is so perfect for that scene was that your first time seeing that scene or have you seen it before i think the only thing i ever saw outside of the context of the movie was him in the ice bath and that's it yeah, because that, that, that scene is so phenomenal. The whole sequence is, is so great. And that song, it's out there that it's on an album called Hell, which is pretty funny too, the James Brown track. I'm not aware of that song, but I think it's the perfect song for that scene. It, it's so good. And that scene, man, it was like nothing else I've ever experienced since. It was just, I guess for me, when I first saw it as a kid, the closest thing I can kind of put this movie up against was like angel heart which was again like it's just big budget it felt like a big budget horror movie with real actors in it you know which always kind of puts it on a, a more of a top tier because i was so used to friday 13th and halloween's but that scene just for again it's another scene from this movie that has never left me it's like it's pretty brilliant and that's funny because i think Pruitt taylor vince is also in angel heart and he plays a character it's two detectives like Deimos and Phobos, the uh, Sons of Mars, are uh, like one of his characters. His character is one of those two names. Oh, shit. You know, I need to rewatch it. My dad gave it to me when I was a kid. He's like, you got to watch this. And, and, you know, and I was kind of blown away by it, you know, because like I said, it just like I liked it when like Misery came out. James Caan was in it. I liked it when you saw like real. No, I love horror films, but I just, you know, I was so used to seeing, you know. The only stars I knew from horror films was like Tom Matthews, you know, when I would see a movie with like real, I guess I would say A-list actors in a horror movie, but they were always thrown off as, oh no, it's a thriller. It's not a horror film. It always just had, it seems like it had a bigger impact for some reason on me, especially Angel Heart. That, well, that movie was so controversial, especially with uh, Lisa Bonet being in there and her being still on the Cosby show or just had left the Cosby show and on a different world. I mean, it was so like, Oh boy, America's sweetheart. And it's like, all right, sure. You can't have a sexuality. These are the eighties. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And after that scene of them at the party, that's when you get that famous scene of him in the ice bath. And just apparently he had a, you know, he had a freak out at the party after seeing Jezebel like this. And then when you wake up, I think there's a little Vietnam flashback in there. And then he wakes up at, at, in the apartment. One other thing I should say is that. He is constantly waking up. So it's one of these, like, you should know that he's dreaming because he is constantly waking up. So when he wakes up this time, 
She's just like, man, I can't believe you embarrassed me so much at this party and like reading him the riot act about being mortified. And then he has a temperature of like 106 degrees and it starts this whole thing of this ice bath going on. And then this weird moment that just, it's the one thing in this movie that just really gets me is he's in the ice bath and then suddenly he's back with Sarah. And it's like, we have gone off a whole other branch of fantasy where he's back with Sarah. Not only is he back with her, but Gabe is either now he's back in the past or Gabe is still alive in this timeline that he's at. It's like, he's going through like different levels of dream type stuff. And it almost feels like he's moving back and forth in time with this stuff and that that ties in to the ice bath. You know, you're talking about how, you know, things bleed from one timeline to another and that he's there going like, Oh, you know, it's so cold. It's so cold. You you left the window open. And that also, calls to mind the whole idea of Dante's Inferno and that many layers of hell are cold. It's not just fire and brimstone kind of stuff that there's realms. Those levels of hell are, some of them are super cold as well. That's another great punishment. I think I would probably be worse off in a super cold hell than I would in a super hot hell. I'd be like, oh yeah, bring it on. I love the heat. I didn't know that about Dante's Inferno. I never read it. I always kept thinking about like when people are dying in movies, they're like, I'm cold. <laughs> and so that's what I was, that, that's what I was going back to. But, um, and then right in one of his flashbacks, you know, they're giving him more drugs and I guess they're pushing his guts back in at that point too. So that's probably why it's such a intense experience for him. The scene in the tub when he's just looking up, like Jesus Christ, like why wasn't he nominated for best act? best actor for this movie because his performance is phenomenal like his you feel for him because like from the opening in the vietnam he's very likable because he's just laughing as as the guys are breaking his balls you know talking about him shitting all the time he's laughing he's got that moment with the women singing postman but then he's got these um you know like these quick emotional scenes where he sees you know his son's picture before she throws out the pictures, he's crying. That scene in the tub, that performance, it's not saying anything, but it's all in his face and his eyes. He's tearing. It's phenomenal. We, we mentioned a lot of the good stuff, but there's a, there's one unintentional laugh in this movie where the first time we pulls out Gabe's picture and it's Macaulay Culkin. And out of context, it's just so ridiculous because, and this is also the year that Home Alone came out. Like it's a few months, a few short months away from every person in the world basically knowing who this kid is. So, but yeah, you got to laugh when you this picture and you just think, oh, so is this guy a huge Macaulay Culkin fan? Like, what's going on? <laughs> he carries this picture around in his wallet. <laughs> oh, Kevin McAllister, I remember you so well. <laughs> I, I loved you and Richie. Why Rich. didn't you come back for Home Alone three? Yeah. <laughs> Why didn't you punch Trump in the nuts in Home Alone two? So the most horrific scenes for me are, like you said, the party when the demon kind of rapes Jezebel. And then when he is, gets kidnapped by those guys outside of Jason Alexander's office and they pull him into this car and are threatening him, you know, like you better quit talking about this, quit asking questions. Again, we're super into like Alan J. Pakula type territory with this type of stuff. And then, yeah, they throw him out of the car. Santa Claus comes along and steals his license or steals his wallet, which then begs the question, I don't know why people aren't writing all these articles, is Jacob's Ladder a Christmas movie? Dude, 
I was hoping you were going to bring up that stuff. It's like in one way, it's like a dream logic. Why is there a Santa here all of a sudden? And then, and then if you look at the original script, the original script takes place during Christmas. Like, you know, when he meets up with his buddy, forget his name, the guy from Identity who blows up in the car. In the script, there's like Christmas lights outside that bar, which by the way, is like the sickest location for a movie. Like a lot of these locations, it's like, how, how are we going to have these two cats meet in a bar? But let's have a bar that's like half color of money pool hole and the other half is like rocky two sparring ring i fucking love that location you know but that santa scene's a trip because yeah in one way it's like dream logic but then the original script it was a christmas movie but there's this great line afterwards where they ask about his wallet in the hospital he says santa claus took it or something and it's just too good it's like the funniest line in the movie the funniest intention alive they have to keep it in and then the guys that pull them in the car in the script are army officials. And I kind of like that change where it's just these guys that look like mobsters. Like the guys that are hunting them down look like just mobsters to me. Maybe because I'm, I'm, I'm part it's of this. Sort of a, it's sort of an FBI agent type situation in this unmarked car, but they totally look like mobsters. So I think it's just, again, messing with us in this these really delicious ways. I mean, one of the guys for sure has been in like just a ton of mob movies and mob TV shows. I can't remember the gentleman's name, though. Fucking Jacob needs to stay away from cars because the alley scene, the car is going after him. And, and I thought what was interesting about the alley scene is that Adrian Lin said that he, you know, like Jacob's, you know, going back and forth, escaping the car. And then he, Adrian Lin said he reshot it three times that and then he kept using different people looking out the window because he shot it once and it didn't work. He shot it again and he wasn't sure and he shot it a third time. So he blends three different times he shot it into that scene so that's why one second it's like one guy the verb waiting zombie dude in the back one seat you'll you'll notice that doesn't match the other guy that's driving that doesn't match the guy that's looking out the window it's fucking yeah incredible it was incredible that he was able to do something like that you know because i don't know if you'd have the, you know he had i guess he had the pull to, to pull something like that off back then which is great and he's back, apparently, after 20 years and just directed this Ben Affleck movie. Yeah, I kind of liked it. I know a lot of people... I didn't, I just, I didn't see it. <laughs> a lot of people didn't like it. It's not for everyone. But I liked it. I'm a fan. Especially when you see this movie, man. It's just like... And if you really... I don't know. As a kid, I don't, I don't think I got Flashdance, but it was such a cultural relevant movie. The soundtrack was everywhere. You, you know, on MTV, they kept showing the music video with the scenes from the movie. But when I'm watching this movie, it just, just hits you how much like, man, his fucking, his aesthetic is just so good. Even though like Indecent Proposal, like I'd never really seen it, but you couldn't escape the scene in the bed with the money. And then just the premise of that movie, it seemed like the premise of the movie carried that movie too. It's just Fatal Attraction, the elevator sequence, you know, it looks so fucking good. You know, it's like homeboy has an eye. Yeah. And it's weird because he's one of these guys that comes from that same working in advertising that I don't remember. I think Ridley Scott also was an advertising director and for sure Tony Scott was. And then when you look at like his editor and his DP, it's like there's so many crossovers with Ridley and especially with Tony Scott. It's like they just kind of glommed down to the same people. Out of, yeah, those three guys in the 80s, you know, you when you saw a Tony Scott movie, it looked big because, you know, those magic hour shots, you know, it just felt big that just the way he shot stuff all three of those cats totally because i was struck by how similar the the trajectory of adrian line and uh, ridley scott is 
this you know well British guy coming in and with this background of of uh, advertising there's there's a few more like Jonathan Glazer is a newer example. So do you have a sense of how big this movie's called Following is? Is it still sort of a hidden type gem or is it or do tons of people know about it? With it being coming out in the 1990s, you know, certain people of a certain age, like me, were around when it came out, like Stephen as well. I don't, you know, Eve, I'm not going to speak for you as far as your age goes, but, you know, I remember it playing and I remember it being pretty big at the time, but then it just kind of got dwarfed by Ghost, you know, the same year. It's, it wasn't a huge hit. It was definitely successful, but it wasn't like the box office beast that something like Ghost was, so think that it still must have a cult following. I mean, we'll talk about the sequel or the remake, I should say, after the break, but I don't know if having a remake necessarily qualifies it as having a big cult following because sometimes you're just like, why? Why are they remaking this one rather than something else? Because it's just so strange. And especially with this one, it's like, why are you remaking this? This is done pretty perfectly. I don't think we necessarily needed a remake for it. This movie is definitely had a cultural relevance because I, I watched walkthroughs of it. I haven't played it, but Silent Hill uses uses a lot. The, the scary nurse is the same nurse. Um, even the harness he's put in at the hospital when he's the shake, the head shaking is in Silent Hill. And then um, when I was watching this again for this episode, the whole subway sequence when he's going into the tunnels, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've played video games where I've been in those tunnels, you know, like in Fallout and, and shit like that. I know video game people are definitely designers, you know, are definitely fans of this movie because they're always using this aesthetic, you know, and then later on, you know, like House on Haunted Hill and saw an episode of Hannibal using the, the crazy face. I mean, I you know, I think Joe Dante did it first in Inner Space, but it was in, that was more of a comedic way but what he did with that in this film was just incredible you know i hadn't seen any even though i you know i didn't remember in a space as a kid and then oh that's just like now in this movie it just works as its own terrifying element but i think it definitely has cultural relevance like it really seeped into people and it's probably influenced a lot of stuff we don't even realize yeah, that whole thing with the subway and him not being able to get out of the subway i mean that was the dream that Bruce Joel Rubin had that really set this whole thing in motion. And I can't say it was a dream. It was a nightmare. I mean, this whole idea of being caught someplace and not being able to ascend. I mean, and that's the whole thing is like Jacob's caught. He wants to get up. He wants to go to the next thing. He wants to get out of where he's at. And it's such a nice little metaphor for the entire film. He couldn't go up the stairs, but he's eventually able to go up the stairs at the ending, you know. But the thing I noticed this 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 viewing I never noticed before when he gets off the train, it doesn't say exit like at the stairwell. It says exit in the tunnel, which is strange, and that's where he has to eventually go. I thought that was such a trip. I was like, I've never noticed that before. And then of course he goes through the tunnel, he dodges the train where we see the the demons, but we never see him get out of the tunnel. It just cuts, you know. The name of the station is visible, but it didn't sound like a real station name. But did you have anybody check if it's an actual subway station? You see the name all over the place, and it so doesn't sound like a real name. But I'm not sure. Yeah, because the yeah the tunnel scene. Yeah, I guess Adrian Lynn said that it's the tunnel down there leads to hell in in the commentary. But you know he gets blocked from going down the tunnel from the oncoming train, and um, yeah, and that, that kind of like made me think like how many. 
movies have like, I guess movies that deal with spiritual have trains in them too. Cause you know, like spirited away has the sequence when she's on the train. I think that's, I guess, well, it's not a train, but I guess heaven and vehicles, like heaven can't wait when he appears in heaven, they're all going aboard a Concord, you know? And I believe, is there a train in the Albert Brooks movie for some reason? Oh, in Defending Your Life? I'm not sure. I'm not sure too. For some reason I thought there was something about it. I, I haven't seen that since I was a little kid. So, I, but yeah. But I thought, uh, yeah, because there's a movie called The Heavenly Kid from 1985 that has this weird opening, similar opening where he dies playing chicken in the 1950s, this dude. And then as soon as his car drives off, he wakes up on a train, just like in Jacob's Ladder. And then when he gets off the train, he's not allowed to go up the escalator to heaven. He's he's in his own purgatory in 19, goes back to, he goes ahead into 1985 and he's got to save his son's life. And I thought that was a weird a mirrored movie to this even though it's made in 1985 and it's a, a silly comedy but i was like kind of shocked at how when i was looking at the heavenly kid and looking at Jacob's or how strangely similar it is okay so i checked that it's bergen street station it's a real station all right on i'm from new york i should have known that so bruce joe rubin came from like what a christian or a jewish background and then he went jewish background yeah jewish and then he went more what buddhist or 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 you yeah, because he talks a lot in the interview about the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the whole thing about, what is it called, Bardos? And just like how, and I know there's that movie that just came out called Bardo, but it's like a, basically like, like a transition from one to another type of thing. So yeah, he he's definitely very, very spiritual, which is pretty cool that it, it informs so much of his work. Because a lot of the interpretations we've been talk, throwing around are sort of more Judeo-Christian, but I'm guessing... He has more sort of like a Buddhist interpretation of death and what reincarnation or, or some kind of something somewhere in the middle between the two, because it is a purgatory or hell type situation, right? Anyway, anyway, you look at it. Well, and then, yeah, his versions of demons and angels were much more like you would see in a, a Bible class type of thing, rather than this more natural uh, line said the word thalidomide so like the whole idea of like birth defects and just like the horrific ways that flesh gets twist twisted so like it being more of like a natural thing with that woman's horn coming out of her head or just like you know the the people at the hospital where it kind of reminded me a little bit of like the second half of el topo with like all the people that are trapped in that el topo trying to free like some of those people look like they have some of the same afflictions. Like there's one guy who's like crawling along the top of the fence when Jacob's going underneath it. I mean, it's like, wow, this is, is pretty great. And the way that he keeps getting lower and lower, and it feels like they're going deeper and deeper into the bowels of this hospital and the parts where it's like just body parts laying around or blood just all over the ground. I mean, that whole thing. And, and, mentioned how line had reshot the uh the car stuff just that he went back and reshot the gurney stuff so that he uh fixed the wheel so that it would shake like a regular gurney rather than being perfectly straight and just that little touch of this gurney being broken it was like well that adds a real nice layer of verisimilitude to it uh it's such an incredible descent that scene a lot of doctors in this movie, and because the first doctors that see him after he's, you know, falls out of the car, they're just being such assholes to him. And then all of a sudden, it's like they're bringing him to another wing of the hospital that's like outside in the back or something. And then it starts that descent. 
Oh, yeah, and then to going back what you were you were saying, like um, uh, the the guy on in the subway, his tail was originally there was like a a storyboard in the Cine Fantastique of the original scene. The storyboard was like his tail was supposed to be more of old fashioned devil tail with the spike with the point. Yes. Yeah. And so they changed it to that phallic thing, which always as a kid, I never thought that was a tail. I just didn't, you know, it was just always disturbed me because I could never figure out what it was. Yeah, you just get a glimpse of it and it's really disturbing. This this veiny demon schlong thing. Yeah. It's so smart too, the way that they end this with taking the cab uptown, Sam the doorman, just like, oh, hey, let me help you upstairs. No, no, I got it kind of thing. And when he's just hanging out at his old apartment and we have Louie on the voiceover, you know, doing, doing that again, talking about the Meister Eckhart quote and basically him coming to peace. And I watched this one day with headphones on. I think you can hear it without the headphones, but you can hear like a beating heart on the soundtrack. And it's so nice that it's just like, oh, these are the last moments here of his entire life. And then when Gabe shows up and he's just like, here, let me help you. And it's like this nice echo of, you know, Gabe helping his father move on and move to the other side. And, you know, like he and Gabe will be reunited. And it's just such a nice way of, of having him come to peace like that. Or he tells it to himself on his deathbed to make him feel himself feel better. And the, the existence is meaningless. That's interesting. I never, I never got, I didn't catch the heart at all. That's cool. I think it's pretty cool and pretty amazing how, is it Edwin Lynn or Lyon? Do we know for sure? I think it's Line. Is it Line? I think it's pretty cool and pretty amazing how he, it's his only film, I think. Maybe I haven't seen like his early shorts that he did, but I think it's his only film that dabbles in horror at all, right? Pretty much. And it's pretty incredible how he out-horrored so many horror directors who are so obsessed with this stuff. And he, I think, it seems to me that he came to it with a very meat and potatoes approach of how can we make this really scary and how can we make this look best and just like a you know a very pragmatic approach to making it scary and he came up with this such a surreal nightmare ride that really puts to shame so many horror directors almost every sequence you see a demon he's like doing he's one-upping like like i said the scene when the car tries to run him over the faces are terrifying that the slender man looking dude on the back of the train during the opening. Like there is so much haunting imagery in the, the set piece of the dance scene, the gurney scene we just talked about and that deleted scene of the trip out. Dude, those are fucking phenomenal set pieces. That ceiling beast thing. I, ca I can't think of, I mean, you'd think it'd be like cheesy or something, but it's so fucking effective. Well, uh, even that, even later that part of it, the shot where the light bulb blows out, somehow was so affecting to me. I don't know why, but just Bill's the editing is magnificent. I think we should give more credit to whoever edited. I didn't check, but so fucking well edited everything. Everything here is so well edited, like picked. Everything is like, you can tell, like one, two or three more frames, it wouldn't have worked as well. Like really meticulously done. That was Tom Rolfe that did the editing for this one. And he was also an editor on Taxi Driver, a film that we might have heard of before. But yeah, he had done a, a ton of stuff, including... That's about the crossover Black Rain and Nine and a Half Weeks. He had already, you know, worked on with the uh, line on that. He also worked with Paul Schrader. He did Blue Collar and Hardcore. So this guy was all over the place for a while. Did a great job. And then the Morris Jar score, I think, is great too. And it's not 
intrusive. It's just like, just enough to let you know, like there's a score here, but it's not just like screaming violins and, you know, horrific things going on. It's not like, again, beating you over the head with it. I'd like that this movie is so subtle in its horror, just like those little quick shots like that. You're talking about the tail from the homeless guy on the train. What the hell was that? You know, and it's over so quick and they're just not lingering on these things going, Ooh, look at this effect. We spent money on this. Now you have to look at it. Genius. Yeah. And I got to say, there's a, there was a sequence this time I, I never caught before that actually did freak me out. And this is like, I don't know how many times I've seen this movie, you know, and now I've seen it four or five times, but it was after his journey through hell, after, as you brought up, he gets injected in his third eye, which I, I didn't put together as his third eye. You're so freaking right about that. When he wakes up in the hospital bed, again, waking up, like you said, like his family comes and visits him. And late, and and going back early on, as we were talking about their, their relationship, uh, Jesse says that she she looks like a bitch. I can see why you left her. I guess he left her, but at the hospital... As soon as she says that she loves him, there's a voice said, dream on. Dude, that actually creeped me out, this viewing of it, like creeped me out. I knew to expect everything else in the movie, but I had this unexpected jolt of creepiness. And then because he looks towards the camera and he sees something off screen and he's just like, no, no, like almost like every Lovecraft book has that someone seeing something terrible off screen that we never see. It was like... I, I've never caught that before. And then I was like, wow, as soon as she says that she loves him, it's the one nightmare that that it's not going to get forgiven because early on in the movie, like when you brought up that he woke up in the room with her and he's explaining like, you know, he had this horrible dream. He was married to Jezebel and everything. The scene ends when like him, I think, telling her that he loves her. And then he just looks up at the sky with this look on his face again. Like every time something is said about love between him and his wife, it ends with something kind of, you know, unsettling. Like, it's like he's dying, but he can't, I guess he can't apologize or something. And that's what's one of the demons that's killing him. That That's me, though. I don't know, I could be stretching. I want to say that that Dream Online is in one of those deleted scenes as well. And it's like, it almost works so well that they couldn't, give it up, you know, mm-hmm. or, or else they were going to use it twice. I don't know, but it feels like we like this so much that we're going to pull it in and use it over here as well. Yeah. I love that where it's just like, who is this? What is this? You know, you mentioned the whole like glory hole thing. And I want to say it like has something to do with that as it well, did. where it's just like, yeah, you, yeah, you hear it from like the <laughs> other room type of thing. It's so freaky. <laughs> oh yeah. Because the, yeah, that's weird. Cause that bathroom has the glory hole and the other cut scene that you see very glimpse in the making of was that in the opening when he's walking around the subway and can't find a way out he go opens a bathroom stall with two men in there one naked and one pulls a knife on him so it's like this weird thing with public bathrooms in this but they're both cut out so (laughs) it is new york in the 70s i mean i i try not to use public bathrooms now in 2023 All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be back with a pair of interviews. First up, we'll hear from screenwriter Bruce Joel Rubin, and after that, we are going to hear from director Adrian Lyne, and we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. 
Hi, I'm Jason. And I'm Jules. And we do in filmographies. We've compiled a list of actors. We draw a name at random and tackle their entire acting filmography from start to finish. Or at least as much of it that still exists and hasn't been lost to time. Jason loves actor Billy Crudup in films like Jesus' Son or Almost Famous. But will he love Billy in movies like Monument Avenue or World Traveler? No, they're not good. And Jules loves actor Rada Mitchell in films like High Art and Pitch Black. But will he love Rada in movies like When Strangers Appear or Love and Other Catastrophes? You'll just have to tune in to find out. Some of the names that pop up might surprise you. Some of the films as well. So join us every Saturday on the podcast app of your choice or via YouTube as We Do in Filmographies. I know Jacob's Ladder is definitely through so much of your early career, and I was hoping you could tell me a little bit as far as like the origin of that and even more the origin of you and like what led to Jacob's Ladder, because I know you're a very spiritual person, and I know a lot of that came out of the spirituality. I didn't start out that way. I started out as a spiritual anything. I mean, I was a observing Jewish kid from Detroit, and that was kind of my life. I was responsible to following my parents' directives, you know, and we celebrated Christmas, so we were very ecumenical. And I kind of, you know, enjoyed life and everything was fine. And I ended up having a roommate in New York who was very uh, close to Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary was doing things outside of the university setting in Millbrook, New York, experiments with LSD. And my friend went up there regularly and tried it and asked if I would like to try it. I was, I mean, I was strangely uncautious. I don't know why. I said, sure. And he uh, got me a, um, a, a pill of about 65 micrograms, I think. I don't know what it was, but it was sizable enough to initiate something major. And he said, when the day comes and you know it's right, we'll do this. And I said, okay. And it took about six months for me to arrive at that moment. And interestingly, on that very day, a man named Michael Hollings had arrived in our apartment from DeSando's Laboratories in Switzerland, where the LSD is made, with a jar of pure lysergic acid that had just been produced, and said, I don't want to walk around New York City carrying this. Can I put it in your refrigerator? Because my friend and he were going to go to Millbrook the following day. So that was there. And then that evening, I took my 65 micrograms or whatever they were, and nothing happened at all. So my friend said... We just happened to have a jar of pure lysergic acid in the refrigerator, freshly made, and I'll get an eyedropper and I'll give you a drop. And I went, okay. So he goes and he gets an eyedropper and he fills it and he goes to give me the drop and he goes, and the whole eyedropper. So thousands of micrograms went shooting down my throat. And there was nothing at that point that one could do. So, I mean, this could take up our entire interview, the story of what took place at that moment, but it was a complete eradication of everything I ever knew about the world, about life, about human existence, about where, where we fit in the cosmology of a much larger universe, and that there was something so much bigger. It was also very biblical in many ways up front, because it was my, my Sunday school learning of things, you know, so there was a heaven and a hell and all these kinds of things, but they, they were just early. <laughs> it went on and on and on so far beyond that. It came to a place, and I, I try to describe it in terms of time, and I kind of say, I don't know if it was like three or four billion years, but it was long. And at some point in that, I appeared to have died. As far as I, I mean, there was no nothing. There was no anything at all. And it was fine. 
<laughs> it was like completely fine. It was very big and very nondescript in a way, but there was. And and I thought I thought it was that was all. There, I mean, there was no me to think about it really. But then there was this sensation of something dropping into whatever it was I had become, and it was like a uh, uh, like like I'd been impregnated. And then the next thing I knew, parts of me were reformulating, like an elbow and part of the room, and part of my head, and then the wall, the ceiling, and body, and the whole thing reconstructed itself in a three dimensional. AI kind of, but very real news, new emergence, if you will. And I was back in the world. And I said, why? Why am I back? And this voice came loud and clear to tell people what you saw. And that was a directive. And I had no objective beyond that, except the first thing I had to figure out was what had I seen? Because I had no way of understanding it. And my a friend gave me a book called the Bhagavad Gita, Hindu Song of God, which I had never read. Had I read it a week before, it would have been kind of meaningless to me. Reading it at that moment changed everything. And I suddenly understood there was a mystical universe that has been addressed by, it turns out, Eastern and Western religions and philosophies. But at that moment, it was just Eastern for me. And I started reading that, and I started reading Tibetan Buddhist texts, and I was trying to figure out what is all this? What 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 exactly um, did I see? And why is it not, why is it written down? Why do people talk about this thing, this mystical tradition? And I ended up, I was working at NBC, at I had a job as a film editor, and I decided I needed to go to India, and I needed to check this out in a much more profound way than I than reading. So I quit my job, and I began literally hitchhiking around the world. There are multiple minor stories and all this, so I'm giving you the quick and dirty. But I made it overland through, you know, like Turkey and Iran and Afghanistan and Pakistan and all that to India and Nepal. I lived in a Tibetan monastery for a while. I uh, met lots and lots of teachers, none of whom I felt were really my teacher, including, I have to say, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, which is a whole story in and of itself. But I went to see him and... After a lot of sort of begging, I got in, and he and I just talked for hours. And at the end of our conversation, he offered to be my teacher. And I said, "Ruth, I don't, I don't, I don't think you're my teacher." And I said, "If I don't find my teacher, would you be open to my coming back?" And he said, "Of course." And he laughed, and he was wonderful. And and uh, in some subterranean way, he may have been my teacher through this many many years I've had of, of what you might call spiritual meditative practice. I came back and to America, met a wonderful woman, married, had had an incredible life, children, you know, grandchildren, all that, and uh, wrote a movie, which I thought was kind of trying to describe some of these experiences that I'd had. And the movie was called Brainstorm, and it was Natalie Wood's last film. And for reasons I don't fully understand, it actually got made. It had you know, enormous difficulties being, being made. And in the end, you know, of course, you know the story. Natalie died before it was finished, and there was a lot involved in bringing it to conclusion. But the big thing that happened was that, well, it was opening in uh, Hollywood. We went to see it with no money in our pockets at all. I mean, we could barely afford the trip there. And we had lunch with Brian De Palma, who's an old friend. And uh, he said, you know, if you want a career here, you got to move here. And we went back to Illinois, where we were moving, living at the time, and my wife quit her job. 
And she said, we're moving to Hollywood, which was a terrifyingly scary situation. But we did it with no money, no promises, two kids, everything. And everything changed. And what I realized is that this universal thing was looking for my level of commitment to all of this. When I made that commitment, it opened the doors. And it, but you had to prove it. You can't, I couldn't just say, hey, I want to be a Hollywood writer. But while I was in Illinois, having had a film called Brainstorm Produced, open, closed within three weeks in a way, having no, no impact whatsoever on my Hollywood career, I woke up one night with a dream of a guy on a subway. And he was got off the subway at a station that had no exit. There were no, All the doors were barred, and he didn't know what to do. And so he crossed the tracks very carefully, because you can be killed by the third rail, and got to the other side, and all the doors there were barred as well. And, and he didn't know what to do, but he had this sudden terror that he was in hell and had to figure out how to get out. And when I woke up, I thought, I have to write this as a movie. And in a way, I had to write his and my journey out of hell. And so that began Jacob's Ladder. And I started thinking, if I wrote this script right, it would open doors. And in a strange way, it really did. The writing of the script was, I don't know if some writers will understand this, I guess it was kind of delivered. I, I would sit there and go, as I was writing as fast as I could, trying to take the dictation of whatever this was about, my wife came in the room and kind of looked over my shoulder at one point to see what I was writing. And she said, what is that? And I said, I have no idea. But I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. It got me an agent at the time, and um, that was very valuable, although she was no longer working as an agent and not able to really move things forward. But she was very helpful in the writing of it. Of it. She kept pushing me to make it better, which I kept trying to do, but she knew it was good, and I felt it was good. I didn't know what what it would become or what to do with it, but a couple of things started to happen. I got it to Marty Scorsese, who had been a classmate at NYU and a friend, and he really loved it, and a number of other people. And then suddenly I get a call from American Film Magazine from Steve Robello saying, I'm doing this article on the 10 best unproduced screenplays in Hollywood, and we'd like to include you. I went, really? And I didn't know how he knew about it. I had no idea how he knew about it. But he put it out there, and when I went out to Hollywood, and I had finally made my move with no anything, people knew me because of Jacob's Ladder. Not, not Brainstorm, which was, you know, just another movie that had come and gone, but Jacob's Ladder, the script, they knew me. And I, I had an agent for a short time during that, another, a new agent, but, but he said to me, I don't want to represent you anymore. Nobody wants to make movies about ghosts. He said. So I went, okay. And then I didn't know what to do. And I find this new agent named Jeff Sanford, who said, your script, Jacob's Ladder, is why I got in the business. And I will make, you will get millions of dollars. You, you, I will make you a very successful writer. I want to represent you. And he did all of that. He, he changed my life. He put everything out there in the world for me. He got Jacob's Ladder going. He got um, Ghost going. But he also had another kind of angelic presence, so a woman named Lindsay Duran, who was a vice president of Paramount at the time and then later a president of Universal and, and, uh, and a remarkable person. And she, it turns out, is one of the people who recommended Jacob's Ladder to the article in American Film. 
And she's the one who said yes to Ghost. And there came a moment while we were making Ghost, friends of mine said, I think we have a director for Jacob's Ladder. I went, really? Who? And they said, Adrian Lyne. I mean, I loved his work. I mean, I thought powerful, powerful filmmaking. And they arranged a get-together at a party where there was a fight, a, a, what do you call it, fight? Um, I forget who was fighting, on television. And he was totally into the boxing match. And I'm sitting next to him wanting to talk about Jacob's Ladder, and he's not doing anything. And and it was like such a strange moment. I went, but, but, but you know, we're here, and but it wasn't coming up. And then his wife comes over and leans over to me while he's watching the match, and she said, he's going to make your movie. So I went, okay. And then it began. We started to have a, a dialogue, a relationship. He became the force of making Jacob's Ladder. Uh, uh, we were, at that point, going to do it at Paramount, thanks to Lindsay. She immediately said, this is great, we'll make it here. But then the president of Paramount left, Adorn Steele, and she went to Columbia. And suddenly we didn't have a champion in the, the, at that level. And then the new person who came in to Paramount didn't want to make, didn't understand Jacob's Ladder, didn't know why we should make it. And so there's a long story about how it got made at Carolco. Carolco. The journey was a journey really ultimately between Adrian and I over the interpretation of the script. I will say, in the end, I'm very proud of Jacob's Ladder. I think it's a really um, potent film. And I'll say that if... I'm following this directive of the LSD experience of telling people what I saw. It comes as close to a direct statement as I could get, primarily because it depicts the uh, what's called in Tibetan terms the Bardo state. There's a movie out now called Bardo, but this is this was a depiction of the life in the mind of a man who had died or was dying. You can look at it in your own way, but. It's a journey into reconciliation, a journey into acceptance, a journey into arriving at a place of clarity and peace and understanding and of finding your way up the ladder. And that's what Jacob's Ladder is. Some people have never figured that out watching it. But because for some people, it's intellectually just too confusing. But it really is the ride of the psyche, I believe, of every human being at the end of the human journey where they are facing the existential inevitability of everything and unprepared with only like I had had a, a Sunday school education really in what is all this. It's a very scary moment. It's a very confusing moment. And you're dealing with really, really big forces. I mean, I can't even describe the nature of it, but they know every element of your, of your being. They are your being in a way. It turns out that if you move into this arena of of the meditative internal arena, you can begin to actually access that space. It's not hidden from us. It's actually driving our lives at every given second. But most people in Western society only see the outer manifestation. They don't see the unmanifest. They feel it. They feel emotion. They feel thoughts. They experience thoughts. They have a feeling of something, but they don't dive in and feel it. And therefore, they are totally blindsided by it at the end when the finality comes and they realize it's not final and that what's in front of them at that moment has never not been there, but they have paid zero, zero attention to that. So because I had that LSD experience and because I was instructed to let people 
know about this a little bit. I got the movie made, and luckily Adrian came on board, although he also is not an introspective, meditative person. On the other hand, he was very respectful of all of that. But I had written a script that had an enormous amount of uh, biblical, lake-like imagery of demons and devils and all of the angels, all of that classical stuff. And he said, nope, can't do that. It's too, it's too familiar. People will laugh at it. They will not take it seriously. But I said, that's why I wrote the movie, because it's that classical image that will, I think, descend on most people because out of their you know, Sunday school experience, that's all they've got. He said, I can't go there. And I went, well, um, uh, uh, what it would do? And we began a big search for the imagery that would work. And in the end, the simplest explanation is there was a woman, a nurse, who had a, a, a hat that fell off, and underneath the hat were going to be horns, like devil horns. But he said, I can't do horns. He said, but let me show you this. And he shows me a picture of a person with a cancerous growth, growth, cancerous growth coming out of the top of their head. And I went, oh. and he said, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for the biological. We're looking for the thing that is not expected that makes people react the way you just did when you saw that photo. That's what we're looking for. And uh, I couldn't disagree. You know, I just, I mean, I, I mean, I could have, you know, and, uh, and I, but he didn't want the film to have any real biblical reference, which in a way was not wrong because in so many ways, it's, it was almost more of a Buddhist kind of Eastern movie, but not because it's clearly deals with, with classical biblical imagery, heaven, hell, and things like that. But he got the imagery right. He did say, however, that at the end of the movie, which was Jacob's triumph in a way, and going up the ladder into heaven, he said, I can't do that. That's for Spielberg. I cannot do that kind of imagery. He said, I just, I don't want to do it. I don't like it. I, I mean, I can't, that's not my specialty. He wanted it all real. But I said, I wrote this entire incredible ending in which Jacob does battle with this person who is both angel and demon. We can't tell which. And he's set on fire in a way, and he ends up as a crisp, charred entity, and you think dead, and then you move toward it, and you see eyes that are alive. And then this person or a character in the movie rips his flesh, and light pours out. And then more light. They just rip off all his flesh, and he's nothing but light. And then there's ladder that comes out of the sky, and all these beings are going up and down, and beings of light, and they beckon him forward, and he goes and he walks up the ladder, and he goes into the final whatever, maybe final space that I believe in some way we all are drawn to and perhaps arrive at. And the movie, and that the light goes out, there's, you suddenly go to a light and there's a doctor who says he's gone, he's passed, he seems in peace. The end. That was how it was supposed to go. He said, I can't shoot that. <laughs> and I went, blah, 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 blah. And so we had endless dialogues about how do we make that work so he's happy and I'm not getting happier because I'm losing a big part of my story and my imagery and all of that stuff. And he comes up with this idea of his having a dead son who leads him, perhaps, and finally arrived at this up a staircase, and that it's symbolic of, this, of the latter, but it's clearly more material and, and real world. So we did that. We shot the film like that. He tried to do a little bit of some of the battle scenes that we had, 
and uh, with the with the demon. But I, I could tell you even the way he was shooting it, there was no continuity, not enough continuity for it to ever make it into the film. So we ended up losing that. That was very painful for me. On the other hand, when I would watch the dailies, Adrian's dailies, I could see a genius at work. His work was so stunning. And it was interesting because I had the film Ghost being shot at exactly the same time and for a period in New York and in New York. So I would go from the Ghost set to the Jacob's Ladder set to the Ghost set. And then at night, I would watch the dailies, the, 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 the film we had shot that day at Technicolor. And Jerry Zucker, who shot Ghost, was very precise and very just. And we had half hour dailies. Adrian had three hours of dailies. And he would shoot, okay, let's move the camera on the half an inch closer or half an inch closer, half an inch with every take so that every actor had maybe 40 takes of his line or more from a tiny little bit of a different angle. I kept thinking, oh my God. But the, the possibility from that level of opportunity to be able to choose from one take to another to another, if you have a good eye and if you are a good filmmaker, which Adrian is, that selectivity is a gift. You don't have to go this color paint, this color paint. You have a variable arena of possibilities. So I could tell I was in good hands. And the film really just looked amazing and felt amazing. And the performances, of course, were I think stunning, you know, Tim Robbins is, is, was the best person we could have ever gotten for that role in Elizabeth Pena and uh, Danny Aiello, who actually plays my chiropractor. <laughs> my chiropractor is named Louis Savas in New York, and he's named Louis for, for him. And Louis was, was a great theologian in a way. And while he was cracking your body and your neck and all that stuff, he was giving you all this sort of feedback about the larger world. And and he delivers the most important line in Jacob's Ladder, which is um, from uh, Meister Eckhart, a 16th century theologian. And that line is really the essence of the movie. And it is, if you're afraid of dying, you will see demons tearing you from your flesh. If you are open to dying, those same demons are actually angels freeing you from the earth. That is the center piece of Jacob's Ladder. And that's what it's about. And if I have a message to deliver to the world, it would be that. And it's not mine. It's Meister Eckhart. You know, but it's the right line. And I got it in front of however many people. I mean, not in the original version did many people see Jacob's Ladder. It was not, it was not like a big splash hit. But I am told, this is all, you know, perhaps who knows if it's true, that in sophomore year of college, Kids all smoke marijuana, often sometimes for the first time, and watch Jacob's Ladder. And I don't know if that's real, but I've heard it from so many places and so many times, and it's very transformative. So that may or may not be true, but it's still playing. It's still there. You know, it's 30-some years since, uh, almost 33 years. Not every movie gets to live in the consciousness of the, of the public that long. I don't know why it has, but I'm going to say it's because the message is coming through to people, and the message in Ghost, and I mean, literally in every movie I've ever done, and I try to say that every movie is like a sentence, and that my entire career is like a paragraph, you know, of saying something to the world, and I don't know if it, you know what its impact will be, and I, you know, I'm at a point in my life where I kind of have no identity with any of it. I just it was a great experience, you know. I mean, Hollywood is a really interesting ride. I love it. 
loved it and hated it. I don't say hated it, but it's very ego destroying. <laughs> you know, you have all these other people sort of rewriting you much of the time and doing all this stuff. So you don't get your whole voice out there. Again, my experience with Adrian was the compromise that artists have to do with other artists to get their films made. And uh, in the end, I'm proud of the work. You know, although Jacob had a lot of, we had some struggles even at the very, very, very end. And I, I will tell you, in the last month, we were doing previews for uh, audiences and and they were beginning to think that the last fifth of the movie didn't have to be there. It was like too long. And we cut it out for a few screenings of tests of audiences and they had the same result. They're, the people liked it as much with it and without it. And the studio decided we'll just cut out this last fifth of the movie, which over time I've come to understand was kind of a spinning of a wheel one more time than it needed to spin. And I didn't know that yet. But movies are, you know, if you were smart, they they they're very cohesive. And the extra moment may be pretty and interesting and things, but a, and a lot of directors succumb to the extra stuff. But Adrian and the studio at that point decided uh it should go, and they asked my blessing, and I, I said, okay. For years, I would watch Jacob's Ladder when I did in the early days and miss it, but then I didn't see it for like 20-some years, and then I saw it in the theater, and I thought it was terrific, and I didn't miss anything because I'd forgotten what <laughs> would have been cut out, and it just worked. So that was a great lesson for me. You know, among thousands of lessons I learned at Hollywood, Jacob's Ladder was a great teaching experience, and I really uh, loved I love what it is. I love that it got done. I love that it happened along the same time as uh, Ghost, so we were two synchronistically imp impactful films and uh, in, in different ways. And it changed my life. I mean, it really changed my life a lot. And I, all, I, all I can say is uh, listen to the voices inside when they tell you what to do. <laughs> they're very directive and they're, they, they, they are very supportive of you. And uh, but they will do everything in their power to um, make sure you're on board, because if you're not if you're not sincerely there, if you're not ready to risk everything to do their bidding, whatever that may mean, then they don't use you. But if you if you hand yourself over to something greater, and again, everybody has an idea of whatever <laughs> that might be. But for me, it's not an abstraction. Again, the LSD <laughs> gave me a direct perception of wow. And then 50 years of meditating with a wonderful teacher. And, um, and, I, uh, and I have come to kind of witness, if you will, the, the truth of the LSD experience as the core of the whole human journey and that we're all on it. And I don't meet a lot of people who know that, but I meet enough. And I, and I teach a lot of, I, I teach meditation. So I have students who deeply want to pursue this kind of avenue. And it, for me, it's kind of like, why are we here, if if not for that? I mean, if you if you think you're just here to, to get rich and laid and whatever else you think life may have to offer, which is all real. I mean, none of that is an, an abstraction. The thing that you're, you're here for is to face the thing that's coming at you very rapidly every day. <laughs> and when you get to be my age, you, you become aware of how rapid. What was that original fifth that they took out? The end of the movie involved... In my mind, you know, I'm getting old, so I can't describe you the, the whole thing. But there was an attempt to diffuse all of what ex what Jacob was experiencing. This the, the guy, there's this guy that he met who tried to 
help him sort of get out of the hellish experience that he was in with a kind of a drug thing and and it puts him in a whole on a whole other journey you'd think he may have been freed from the craziness that he was going through and then in the end you discover that, that it didn't do that it wasn't really necessary it was just a hope that he had found a path out and there is a a, a version of Jacob's ladder that has those scenes in it not as a, as an extra I think a DVD, the DVD, so you can actually watch them if you want to. They're really well made, of course. Adrian <laughs> made them, but they they don't expand the movie. They don't uh, they don't uh, explain it in any greater depth. They just give you a moment where you hope he might escape this horrible thing that he's been going through, and it doesn't work. But that happens anyway. It was just an, twenty minutes of unnecessary spinning of the wheel but you know when you shoot it cut it add it to the film look at it you love it and you think this is great and then you cut it out you know there's something gone there's something missing and of course i'd written it so jacob had a lot of those <laughs> kind of knife trick cutting aspects in my life on the other hand again to push a spiritual button in life in many ways from the meditative side, it's to let go of your persona, ego-minded self and find the, the, the watcher, the witness, the, the underpinning being that really is um, more the reason you're here than you believe. Louis seems to stand out not just because of him being this kind of very spiritual figure, but also his name is different than almost everybody in the film. Everybody seems to have a very, very biblical name. I mean, are they very representative of the the characters from the Bible? I mean, of course, Jacob and Jacob's ladder and Jacob having the fight with God and Jezebel, but Louis seems to stand out a little bit. The other characters were given kind of biblical names for a reason. Louis was my, was my friend and chiropractor. And I was going to use his name. And I took, you know, Daniel, Daniel there to learn how to do, become a chiropractor. And he's as good as, as Louis. And he is, um, he has all the mannerisms. And, and if you wouldn't, if I put them in the same room together, you would actually have to go, hmm, hmm you know, because they were so, so alike. So in the end, uh, uh, I, he, I wanted him to stand out. I didn't know he was going to be a hero of the movie. My agent at the time, uh, Claire, Claire Degner, Cindy Degner, said, you know, he's your hero. <laughs> he's the hero. He's the same. And, I, and she had me become more dynamic in writing him as the guy, the person who goes into the hospital and gets, takes him out of the hospital and pushes nurses and everybody else away. I loved that he did that. And, and to this day, chiropractors, when they know that I wrote Jacob's Ladder, are very, are very appreciative. You seem to have a very good attitude about the film. You enjoy it now. You like it. But I don't think it was always like that. There was some bitterness in those interviews that I was reading back in the early 90s. No, it was a struggle. It was a struggle. Adrian and I had, he would start every sentence with, with all due respect. But, and he was respectful, but he was cutting my throat over and over and over and over. He was cutting out the heart of my movie in some ways in my mind, changing the image, changing the, the nature of the film. And there was no proof in, at that moment that he was making it better. It was just making it different, and for reasons I didn't understand, and I didn't know, I wouldn't know what to do about it. I was, you know, your writers are very disempowered in Hollywood. Adrian gave me some power, but I, I have to say, he also is someone who listens to everyone. 
including the script girl, the producer, the stagehands, you know, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And I'm standing there going, what do you mean what do they think? I'm the writer. And that was not what he did. He didn't, the writer was just another person in the mix. That's very hard for a writer. But do understand that most writers are not around when a movie is made. They are not allowed to be on the set because exactly the reasons that we're dealing with here, they don't agree with the director. And you cannot afford at however many tens to twenties to hundreds of thousands of dollars a minute, you know, to let the writer go, no, it wouldn't be like that. They can't do that. And I, I understand it. I don't love it because it's not the way it should be. I, you know, I did a musical ghost. It was the only play I've ever done. We did it, you know, in London and Broadway and the writer's right there. You know, the writer's big part of what goes on in theater. Hollywood, no. You're right. The writer is a nobody in the end. And I, I describe it as a totem pole and you would think that you'd be the low man. And I said, no, 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 you're not the low man on the totem pole. You're the part they stick in the ground. You're, you're the thing that holds the whole thing up, but there's no, you're not a part of it. And so I went through that with Adrian in a big way. I had been going through the opposite of that with Jerry Zucker on Ghost, who was, who invited me in, who, uh, who made me a partner in many, many ways that he didn't have to do. And we had an extraordinary journey. Once the film was scripted, finished, I mean, Jerry actually changed the script so much at one point that I was going to leave the film. But then he had the the intelligence, I guess, to keep going. And we rewrote after, we, I was at 10 drafts where I was going to quit. At night, draft 19, we had found ourselves in the best possible version of Ghost, the movie that got made. That was an extraordinary experience. And then I was on the set with him literally every day, except when I would go see Adrian. And Jacob's Ladder, from the very beginning, it was the opposite. It was it was struggle and difficulty. But I tell you, it's better to struggle with a, a filmmaker who knows what they're doing and who, who you can kind of trust in the end. And that, that's not always the case. But I really, I really did. I trusted Adrian, and we went through a biblical struggle of trying to find a common ground for the film. And I think in the end we did but with me screaming and kicking all the way. How close did Jacob's Ladder get to being made before Adrian stepped into the picture? Not close at all. A lot of directors said yes, that they were interested, big ones, Ridley Scott. I mean, there are a whole bunch of, whole bunch of guys, but it didn't happen for one reason after another. And mostly studios didn't want to make Jacob's Ladder. They didn't understand it. They didn't understand why anybody would want to go see this kind of a movie. Paramount was going to do it because they were doing Ghost, and Lindsay was there, and and Don Steele was there, and it was all kind of a go. And then um, when the new president came in and said no, uh, finding a place to do Jacob's Ladder was really hard. It just nobody nobody was willing. It seemed to step up until suddenly uh, the small company, but they weren't that small. <laughs> Carol Go came forward, and and they said they would do it. They were not totally easy about this. I mean, old Hollywood stories, but after a lunch where they agreed, I got home and got a note saying they'll only go forward if you are willing to cut your salary, your fee on this film uh, by quite a bit. And I didn't know what to do. It was my my movie. It was in a contract. I'd already been granted this. I relied on it. And I thought, oh my God. And I had to call Everyone I knew, my agents, my lawyers, everyone, no one was available. 
nobody. <laughs> and I had to make the decision by five o'clock, they said. <laughs> so I ended up calling Adrian and said, look, I may cost us the movie, but I'm not giving up my fee. And he said, I'm right on board with you, which was incredible. And I called Carol Cole and the agents and everybody and said that. And they said, you're making the biggest mistake of your life. But I got the money and the movie went forward. So it was just a, yeah, but a horrible ploy of very Hollywood, very Hollywood. I got to tell you, I mean, there, I don't want to do bad stories on Hollywood, but there are, <laughs> there are many to be told and it's, and Hollywood served me very well. I'm happy. I'm you know, grateful and comfortable in my life, but they don't treat people well. And some people I think are really uh, uh, damaged in that situation. I luckily had the opposite. I was benefited. Yeah. Carico is a, a, an odd place for it just because they were known really by that time as being action, action, action. You know, that was, they were like what total recall. A lot of the Chuck Norris films and things were all coming out of Carol. They were all the, like a step up from Glo Globus, you know? Yes. Yes, they were. And not exceedingly knowledgeable. I think they saw this just as a horror film and then they had Adrian who they wanted. And I think that's why they made the movie. And then it was interesting. Again, I had a very, very minuscule role there until Ghost came out that summer. And, and Jacob came out in October. And Ghost had become, within weeks, the biggest film of the year. You know, And suddenly they were calling me. <laughs> How should we market our film? What should we do? What is your insight? What do you think? And I said, J just call it an art film. Don't make it, don't make it a horror film. Make it an art film. And they tried to do that. It didn't truly succeed because it's not an easy film to categorize. But they did open it, and it did have, you know, it had a run. Uh, I, I will tell you my very, my first experience standing outside the theater in Westwood in, in Los Angeles, waiting for the audiences to come out of an afternoon screening, to wait to see their faces and their eyes and what they thought, you know. And, and before the titles were over, some guy runs out of the theater, and he's standing there under the marquee, and he yells at the top of his lungs, if I ever meet the guy who wrote this movie, I'll kill him. And I went, okay. <laughs> I just turned and walked back to the parking lot and got my car and drove home. That was that. But I, you know, I, I realized I had touched a, I had touched a button, lit a fuse or something, and somebody, probably more than one. And, uh, you know, I, I just felt I did what I was told. I was, I'm not responsible for the reactions to my, to my films. And, uh, and, and I found in my life, very rarely did I get a lot of attention from People, I mean, I'd, other than family or friends, I never would meet people who saw my movies. I, it's just a rare, bizarre kind of thing. It was though the universe was just trying to keep me away from whatever that was because it didn't want to inflate me. It was doing the opposite. So I, I rarely saw people who saw the films, and on a rare occasion when I did, it was, it was pleasurable. It was a good. It was helpful for me, but it was, it was in small dollops, not big scoops. You know, of. Uh, of, of appreciation. And I've lived with that my whole life, really. I, I, I remain, I think, a rather obscure character in the world of, of whatever all this is, the Hollywood thing. But I don't, I don't crave it on, on any level at all. I just, it never was a need. I'm just grateful somehow they made, you know, 10, 11 of my movies. And uh, that's a, and actually in Hollywood terms, is not a bad, bad record. I think you know, it's like a third of my, of all of my output. LSD helped, you know, expand your world and made such a huge difference for you. And there's that at versus the drug that is administered unknowingly to Jacob and his entire 
troop, you know, it's such a different experience between the two drug experiences and just that one is definitely very bad and the other one really helped you out. Yeah. Yeah. Even in this interview, I don't want to be, be a spokesperson for LSD. Uh, what happened to me was an anomaly. It was an overdose. It was a lot of different things. I have friends who have not had good experiences on LSD, others who have. Uh, psilocybin, other drugs have had kind of awakening aspect for people. There's tribal involvement from various places around the world where, where whole groups come together for a common initiation into the larger picture. But um, I did I did want to make Jacob someone who had taken a drug that had a, uh, a strange altering experience for people. But it was it's fictional. I wondered, I thought it was fictional. What we're discovering, of course, is that such things have been done in the military. The producer of the film wanted to put that as a title on the, on the screen, and I believe it's there. And I said, no, no, don't. This, this film is not about that, really. It's just, um, it's a story of a guy trying to understand how he, how he died, you know, and what happened to everybody. And he was, he was bayoneted, really, by guys who went crazy. But yes, the drug was a background to that. But he wasn't killed by the Vietnamese necessarily. I mean, to the degree that we ever know the truth of our own demise, you know, he was killed by uh, my friend Perry Lang, who, who, had, who played the soldier. I don't try to advocate at all for drugs. And I, I try, if I do say anything positive other than that I had a life-changing experience, it's that be cautious. A lot of drugs are not pure. A lot of drugs come at you from the wrong way. Wrong setting when you take a drug is really disastrous. Wrong people around you. Uh, it, you know, it's just not a, it's not a play toy at all. It's a, it's a sacramental moment. And if you do it sacramentally and you can understand that, <clears throat> great. But if not, I, I, I don't, I'm not sure I would put that in front of me or in front of anyone. On the other hand, uh, there are a lot of little tastes of it, marijuana, you know, being you know, kind of a little glimpse of the bigger picture and, uh, you know, other other things that people do. But in, in the end, I want people to look at this journey that they're on, this life that they're in, from some altered perspective. So it's not just kind of head-on, blind, <laughs> you know, doing the thing that will keep you financially comfortable or, you know, or take care of the happiness of the kids around, people around you. I mean, all that's fine, but it's an existential journey from nothing to nothing or, or to... Um, then I'm going to call uh, John. In the end, uh, it's the absence of all of all, of all three. It's impermanence. It does. You can't live a permanent life in an impermanent state, and you cannot look to the level of impermanence around you as for the answers, because they don't hold water. Usually, the most they can do is point you to this place inside where answers do arrive. And not only that, movies arise, uh, music, Beethoven, you know. Something is arising from that place. And you know, I was listening to Beethoven's Fifth the other day, just kind of lying there and experiencing for a moment what it must have been like to hear that music for the very first time as you're putting it on into notes, you know, and feeling what that feels like to be the recipient of da 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 da. You know, what what is that? And it's like so beautiful. It's so beautiful. We're getting that every day. We are getting grace notes, at least, if not symphonies, all the time. And if people can connect to the grace notes, it feels like it's really, really beautiful. I mean, beyond belief. And uh, 
And the journey here starts to quietly make some kind of sense, not necessarily intellectual mind sense, but a kind of a knowing of this is really pretty special, kind of magical. I really like how the movie wrong foots us a few times with the disappearance of the psychiatrist, the explosion of the car with Brute Taylor Vince in it, uh, Jason Alexander, like, no, nothing happened. I got a phone call. It's, it's very much a conspiracy theory through so much of it. It makes us think that we're in a conspiracy f- theory film, even though we're not. Look at life. Things we know to be true suddenly aren't true. The world as we think it is, isn't. And if it is, it is for a minute, then it's not. So, you know, Jacob's Ladder kind of plays with those uh, insecurities of, of knowledge, of, of, of certainty, you know, because if anything, I don't, I think certainty is a real problem. You know, it's a religious problem. It's a uh, psychological problem. Everything is liquid in a way. It flows in different ways. And holding on to one thing as it's altering underneath you and beneath you and around you is kind of kind of a waste of time in a way. It's kind of sad, but it's very common in human experience. And now we're living in a world of such unbelievable, transformative sort of changeability and not knowing what's what up, what's up, what's down, what's real, what's not real. So Jacob's Ladder just kind of puts a light on that, you know, and that's it. And, 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 and I think touches truth a little more perfectly than, than films that lock you into the happy, happily ever after, <laughs> you know, which I think is kind of very comforting to the psyche, but what is ever after? And even ever after has has an end. And even, you know, people like me get old and, and things fall apart and you don't you go, well, why me? But of course, what a stupid question. <laughs> you know, you show me somebody who it isn't, why me? And, you know, I would like to find that. So that's the reason in Jacob's Ladder has a lot of uh, undercutting of belief and truth and, and repositioning of thought mind from, oh, this is what's happening. Oh, he's married. Oh, he has children. Oh, he's got a lover. Oh, he's, he's a, you know, what, what is real? And that's a really good question. What is real? Why the post office? Is it the exchange of one uniform for another? I don't know. I was told post office. I mean, literally just said, put them in a post office. Part of the, part of the world. You talk about that journey of ghost. I am curious how that changed throughout it, because it's so unusual with, you know, Zucker's background is so much more comedy and you're coming to things from, yes, you can do comedy obviously, but it's not really like the, the thing that you're known for. What is that mashup of the two personalities in that journey of the script? Well, the smartest thing I did was when I was told that Jerry Zucker wanted to do ghost, I didn't have a good reaction to that. I was told, are you, I was asked by Lindsay, are you sitting down? And I said, yeah. She said, we have a director who wants to do Ghost. And I'm thinking Spielberg, Scorsese, you know, the, the, the list. And then she said, Jerry Zucker. And my insides collapsed in a way, because I thought, you know, Beetlejuice had just come out, and I just thought, well, we're turning this one into a comedy somehow. I don't know how, but I didn't know what to say or do. But we arranged to dinner, Jerry and I. And I set a ground rule, which I think was really smart, and I would recommend to other people. I said, we can talk about everything and anything except Ghost. And so we just sat down and talked for hours, and we became friends. And we're still friends to this day. And that just started things on the right track. Then when we started dealing with the movie, of course it got crazy like Hollywood stories do. But all all I could do was think, um, you know, 
I got to stick this out. I got to stick it out. And I tried as best I could. And then at the breaking point was the 10th draft. And I thought, well, I could just leave now, but someone else is just going to come in and turn it into something else. I might as well be the one who does it. So I stayed. In the end, he and I just found our way to the same place. And it was really beautiful. And it was a better movie than I would have written. And certainly a better movie than he would have written. We just found our way to what it should be. It was great. Where was that starting place for you? What are the differences between what you originally came up with and what we see today? Well, it's very close to the original, except he wanted more comedy. He helped me, really, I think it helped me understand the, the uh, Oda May, Whoopi Goldberg character. Although I really did end up getting her voice right, I think, and, and joyfully so. Uh, he wanted like a scene at the bank, which I didn't have, where she goes to help get the money out of the bank, but he wanted it to have some juice, some joy, funniness in it. And, I, and all I could think of was a play that my mother had been in when she was young. She was an amateur actress, and, and I had, had helped her with the lines of a play, and it was about a family who had a party, and someone arrived at the party who nobody, none of the, the people throwing the party could remember who it was, and this person was so familiar with them. And so the man sits down at the piano to play something, the husband, and, and he goes, I don't know who they are, they are, they are. Do you have any idea, idea? And the woman goes, no, I don't. So they're singing the song with with this guy standing there knowing thinking it's a song. And so that's where the idea of the bank comes in, where Oda May is there with Sam. And Sam is knowing all these things about the banker that can't be known. And, and Oda May has all these stories about, oh, how's your family? How's everybody? And she's naming names and doing all that stuff. And so I wrote this scene and uh, brought it over to Jerry's house one night and sat downstairs with Janet, his wife, while he went upstairs to read it. And I'm hearing roaring laughter, just roaring laughter. And then he walks downstairs, he comes over, he gives me a kiss on the head and says, we got it. The feel of the film really came out of his pushing that kind of experience. And, uh, and it worked. It just worked. And it was a real, it was a joy. I mean, really, I mean, think about Ghost other than tiny, very, very rare little problems, was just joyous to this second, to this very moment. I mean, everything about it is like a gift. The uh, History Channel does this thing about what's the most important event that occurred on this day in the past period of time. And so the day was July 13th of in history. And they, they said the most important thing that ever happened on July 13th was Ghost Opened in 1990. And I, I called Lindsay Duran and I said, do you believe this? And she said, Marat Saab died on, on July 13th. How can that, how can ghosts be the most important thing that happened on that day? And, uh, and I, I agreed in the end, but, it, but you know, they're talking about it 30 some years later and not a lot of movies are where that's happening. I've written other movies where people are not talking about them to this day. They're not on anybody's list at all. You, you win some, you lose some. And, and the journey is kind of, kind of, kind of remarkable, but ghost, the ghost had a, a, an impact, and in, about three or four months ago, it was somebody sent me a thing. It was a question on uh, Jeopardy, you know, and it said there's a movie by Bruce Joel Rubin in which the, the plot came from a, seeing Hamlet, which is true because I that's how I got the idea of a ghost saying revenge my death. And they said, what is that movie? And of course, you know, the answer was Ghost. And somebody rubbed me and says, you're a, you're a hero. You're you're you know you're 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 on Jeopardy. And someone said to me, "No, you're just you're just uh, 
an incidental thing. <laughs> You're not important. It's 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 not an important thing at all. It's just you just happen to fill time on Jeopardy. What are we? Who are we? What does it matter? You know, in the long run. But but it was funny that these that these events should occur in that in that way, and that you look back over a life and you end up as a quote on Jeopardy and as a History Channel saying you were an important event. None none of it's true. <laughs> you know, it's it's a funny it's a funny life, Hollywood. That's all I can tell you. And I'm and and the and the ride has proven to be really really interesting. Several times through our conversation, even today, you've said. Oh, that'll take up a whole story. Oh, oh, that that's a whole other thing. Are you writing these down? Are you doing a memoir? Yeah. I have just I have thought finished the memoir, but the editor is convinced it's finished. My son isn't convinced it's finished. People have asked me to change certain things, so it's probably gonna have another draft pretty soon. Yeah, but it does memorialize most of these stories and many, many others. And it and uh, and it's a you know, it's a very strange thing because you know, at the at the end of life. And again, LSD gave me a picture of that. You kind of have to stand naked in front of the universe and and stand up for the totality and be available to the totality. All the hidden stuff gets very exposed. So I decided I would write this book with everything exposed, which is a little bit tricky <laughs> and scary. But I figured when it comes to be my time to go into the afterlife, I'm going to take my memoir and go here. And if all is if all is well, it's all there. I don't have to repeat it. I don't have to hide from it. I don't have to do anything. Done. You know, and then go from there. But we'll see how that works out. So I imagine that's keeping you busy. What else are you up to these days? Not very much. Getting old. I'm up to get, I'm up to getting old. I love I moved three times following my grandchildren. We're now living in upstate New York. I was living in uh, Seattle. I lived in upstate California. I had a house all that time in Los Angeles. But it's a long story how I got here, but I'm I'm here because I love my grandchildren. I'm not going to move again because I'm just getting too old for it. But being here with them is uh, pure joy. My kids being well is probably more important to me than my being well at this point. My wife being well, she's really the hero of my of my life, Blanche, and she uh, she's made it all possible. I mean, again, I would never have moved to Hollywood if she hadn't quit her job and sold the house. <laughs> So, you know, that's been a very lucky moment. And uh, and it really is uh, unfolding. But I will tell you that probably the key thing is the aging experience is so difficult, so profoundly uh, what everyone tells you, not for Sissy's idea. And it really is the ultimate test of your, whatever it may be, your religiosity, your devotion, your spirituality, your lack of spirituality. Losing your body and all of its faculties, and then watching the world strangely go into chaotic mode around you at the same time, so you can't quite distinguish whether it's you or it, and all of what's going on right now is uh, unbelievably challenging. The only thing I have going for me is a meditative practice that's ingrained for 50 years. You know, I was sitting in an ophthalmologist office, and they had Dropped uh, the drops in my eyes, and we're waiting for um, for the drops to cure whatever they do. And and uh, and they left the office and left me in it alone. And I suddenly had a panic attack. And I've never in my whole life had a panic attack. I didn't even know what panic attacks were. I mean, I I felt you know I intellectualized them, but the experience is beyond horrifying. And I began to empathize instantly for every human being who's ever had one. And 
but I didn't know what to do. And so I just went to the very core of my sort of breathing meditative exercise, which is going inward. And I found so much help and release and comfort in that space that the whole panic attack just went whoop, like that. And I went, wow, wow, I can do that. I have found as I have aged that the body is not easy on us. And as, as it does that, the one thing I have is I can go inside and be observant of it without being caught by it. And learning to be an observer rather than just lost in the experience is, is, is wonderful. But, but in the world we live in, unfortunately, in the Western world, there is no practice of internalizing things. It just doesn't exist. We're all, I mean, not very much. We're, we're kind of out there in the world. We don't have quiet time usually. So what I've come to, and this is an interesting thing because it's the teaching of the Dalai Lama, which is why I think I've probably been a student the whole time. I've come to two simple facts. One is I don't know anything at all. I don't really know anything. And two, the simplest thing I've come to, which is the core of the Dalai Lama's teaching and the Buddha's teaching and Christ's teaching, is be kind. Be a kind person. Be good. That's 50 years of meditating, writing movies, living this life, and all it's come down to is something that people have talked about for thousands of years, and to me, it's the ultimate truth, that all you can do, and it really is a practice, because being kind means not being reactive to every single thing that comes up in some uh, nuclear reactive way. <laughs> you know, you need to just say no to that response, do not go there, choose to be good rather than bad, or kind rather than not kind, and see where that goes. And that that's the ride I think I've been on my whole life. I thought it had a lot more, more uh, grandiosity than that. I, you know, I had enlightenment and awakening and all that kind of spiritual stuff, which is real in a way. It's all fine, but <laughs> it's easier to be enlightened and awakened if you don't have children and grandchildren and a house to support. If you just live in a monastery where you just sit under a tree for years, that makes it easier. And it's easier when you're young. When you're old and the structure of your body-mind is collapsing, that's when the work comes in. And I hope people who are enlightened can use that enlightenment to pass through that, that path, that doorway. But I've learned since that, that Buddha, even as he turned 80, was struggling with so many of the things I'm struggling with, like back problems and all these other things. And, and you know, he did sit. He would just go sit quietly. He told other people to teach, and he would just go sit and try to go inwardly. And like that panic attack, that was the one thing that kind of worked. And you have to work it when you get old because you got nowhere else to go except these horrible, horrible drugs, you know, that that turn you, as my own doctor said, into a zombie. Figuring it out now is the time to do it. And films like Ghost and Jacob's Ladder and God knows whatever else, you know, Time Traveler's Wife, maybe My Life, even Brainstorm, they're all, they're all there to teach you in a way that there's no ending here. The ending is not about the end of the physical world. There's something beyond it that's even bigger than this, and you should kind of prepare the way. Mr. Rubin, thank you so much for your time. This has been so great talking with you. Mike, I'm happy to do it. I've, I've learned something, a great lesson, which is don't say no. I had no idea what today would be, but I feel you've been so open and so receptive and so wonderful and so available. And so uh, thank you for that. I'm glad I got to put this out there, and I hope people who watch it have some kind of a, hmm, interesting response.
you were an accountant before you became a commercial director. And how did you make that transition? Yeah, I was an article clerk. I mean, laughably. I mean, I was an absolute disaster. I hadn't got a clue what I was doing. And my only interest in those days was playing the trumpet. I played the trumpet for the jazz geek for about 10 years. And so sort of semi-pro, you know, would play two or three times a week for gigs or whatever. And um, I met somebody at the accountant's. Uh, I obviously wasn't going to be an accountant. He said, I was remember, he said, he said um, if you don't know what to do, you should go into advertising. Because there you can do all sorts of stuff. You can wire, you can you know, maybe a young director eventually or whatever. And you can try. So I went into the um, mailing room of uh, J. Walt Thompson and, and sort of wandered around. It was like a, like a rather run-down old, old hotel. It was tremendous, actually. I loved being there. And so I was there for the six months, and I watched people like uh, John Schlesinger working, doing commercials, you know, for cigarettes and stuff like that. And I worked on a documentary, and I, you know, I gradually sort of... Uh, then I went on the production side, which was disastrous. I had the slightest idea what I was doing, producing commercials. And then, ultimately, I got a shot at directing. I mean, there was a... A lady called Jenny Armstrong, who started a production company, optimistically doing commercials. We did nothing for eighteen months, and we all sat around looking each other at each other in uh, in one room. And then eventually, Alan Parker, funny enough, left an advertising agency called CDP, and he came and made the company work. This company called Jenny Inco, because he was getting fed work from. CDP, and he immediately started working. So I would watch him jealously while I try. I remember I tried to, to learn to type unsuccessfully. Watching him work, literally, he worked every week the commercial. So you know, eventually, I hadn't got the slightest idea what I was doing again. No drink when I somebody gave me a a test commercial um, for a deodorant. I remember that was sort of an interesting idea. It, it was and I, it was as I say, for a de- deodorant, and, and it was a couple making love, but just on their just on their hands, you sort of indicating what they were doing just by their hands. And it was, it was sort of fun, and people liked it, so I, I gradually got bits and pieces to do. But it was a trial by fire, you know, I was sitting tears, you know, because my shot list hadn't worked out and in the lavatory. <laughs> you know, so it was a fairly agonizing for, until... I did a couple of things that weren't... Well, I did a short film, actually, that was quite good, called, called The Table, that people liked. And it was all shot in, in extreme close-up on the breakfast table. Um, and it was about a couple who were breaking up and sort of about jealousy and stuff and how their hands reflected their guilt or lack of. It's, it's quite, quite, quite interesting. You might be happy to know that they actually showed that in one of my film classes when I was in college. You're kidding, really? Yeah, because they were talking about that kind of movement of commercial directors from England coming over, yourself, Alan Parker, Tony Scott, Ridley Scott, and just showing us it was the importance of close-ups, and they showed us the table. Oh, I'm glad you said, well, I hope you liked it, some of it. And what was interesting, I think, was because we... You know, the visual was extended, you know, a lot of it was slow motion and, and repeated. And the sound was quite interesting because it was also repeated, you know, and 
sentences were sort of jumbled up in order to, to the visual. Do you see what I'm saying? It was unrepeated and stuff. And so at the time I think it was quite good. I'm quite interesting from, from a sound point of view as well. I'm glad that you liked it. How did you make that transition from shorts and commercials to feature films, though? Well, I was in, in Los Angeles doing a commercial for Levi's, I think, and I met David Putnam, who was working there at a company called Casablanca, I think. You know, I met him in his office, and he flung, literally flung the um, script at me and said, tell me what you think of this. He said, you won't do it. He said, because it's for an American director. But I read it, and it was, it was foxy. It was a little... Uh, of the story about uh, kids growing up in, you know, sort of delinquent kids growing up in the Valley, San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. So he somehow got him to let me do it. And literally, I remember there was one meeting where he started screaming, and it didn't make a word of sense what he was saying, but people could see his passion to make this thing. And I guess they thought, well, you know, if it all goes wrong, it's his fault. I did it, and I did a lot of research, and I went into the into the valley and sort of learn the difference from between surfers and, and the kids who and the kids who lived in the valley. Things like the surfers all all had long jeans and they trod on the ends. They were always too long and they always had combs in their back pockets. You know, so I I sort of did a, a lot of research on it and literally sat at the back of classes watching these guys um, in school. And yeah, well Jody was I was quite proud because first time that Jodie Foster cried in a movie and, and she was such a professional she said oh don't worry about that she's got music glycerine or whatever and I, I, I really wanted her to put, cry for real and, and, I, and I got her too long after a couple of hours so that got me started it was always the first one the brutal one to get and I forgot I did flash dance after that which I turned down a couple of times which was difficult to, to do because I wasn't doing anything else, you know, I was trying to get things off and unsuccessfully. And then I realized that they actually were going to make it. So I did it thinking that maybe I could uh, make the dances look good, you know, because I thought it was just sort of a little silly and, uh, and, well, it was a fairy tale of the way, fairy story. I knew I wanted to do a wet dance, you know, where the water flied all around. I knew that there was sort of, you know, the potential for, for comedy because the water would drench the audience. And also, I knew that the girl would look good because the water on skin always looks great. But I had not the slightest idea how I was going to do it. And I remember the executives from the studio were all sitting on bleachers, bleachers rather, and I was at the bottom with this poor girl, this dancer, and I was winding a hose around her to sort of indicate some sort of idea of what this wet dance was going to look like. And then that gave you haven't got the slightest clue. But I, I sort of knew that I didn't know that it would be different. You know, if it's, as I said, if I could get the water flying around and, and obviously, you know, she'd look good with the on her skin, etc. But right till the last knockings, really. I mean, you don't, you know, like, like there was so much water, we were all worried which was going to break her neck or something. You know, we all of that water on that. I remember taking forever to backlight the the water, and I was I was doing everything wrong. I was trying to do it do it against a white background, which is absurd because the obviously the um um obviously the water wouldn't show up against the white background. So eventually I turned it around, and I did it with a follow spot, 
you know, the, the comedian you can sit in, in, in the movie and in, in Morbid, you know, in that, in that club. And I sort of stole the liking from many from a Bob Fosse young. And he was very sweet, Bob Fosse, because um, he came up to me. He sort of sought me out and said, I really liked your movie, which is surprising, you know, you know, obviously, I mean, all, all that jazz was some marvelous, marvelous movie. He used to like it. I said, I said, I stole your lighting. Look, he said, from Lenny, actually, I did. The follow spot, you know, that made her, her hair, you know, the hair and the water jump out. And he said, I know. And then, and then I met two producers of, of uh, the chorus line, um, and they wanted me to do that. And I was sort of anxious not to get pigeonholed it doing musicals, you know, which is probably silly, actually. And they were these two old guys who were marvelous. And, and one of them said, he said, uh, you got the buttons right, kid. I was said, you got the buttons right. And I didn't know what he meant, but what he meant, was the button at the end of the scene? You've got to go out, you know, with a, with a wallop. You know, you've got to go out with some sort of kick to get you into the next scene. And so that that was nice. But I was kind of, you know, castigated the movie. My God, and now and then I got a decent one, but I've never been the the critics' uh, darling. For two weeks before the movie came out, they thought it was going to be a disaster. Paramount. I couldn't get hold of anybody, anybody. I mean, couldn't get anybody on the firm. Uh, it's curious that, you know, they thought, and they filled out a third of their interest in the movie just before the movie came out. But they were a little mad after that. Yeah, I, I guess. I had net points and no, nobody ever gets anything out of net meaningless, you know? And, and because nobody wanted any points in this movie, um, I, you know, I did okay. So it seems like the foot sex scene in Flashdance, you've got all of nine and a half weeks, so many good scenes in Fatal Attraction. You're kind of getting a reputation at that point of being like a, an erotica director almost. And then Jacob's Ladder, it feels like a total left turn. I'm so curious how you came to that project. What always sort of is a bit, I don't know, a bit galling in a way is that, you know, with a movie like, um, Fatal Attraction, you know, which was sort of a thriller, really. I get, I guess it's psychological thriller, whatever. I mean, and there's a tiny bit of sex in it that everybody remembers. You know that when they when they they have sex over the that sink, you know, in the, in the kitchen or whatever. And, but people remember it, even though it's only two minutes out of a two two hour movie. That's it's curious. That's what they remember. So it's not like it was a massive eroticism. It really wasn't. But that's, as I say, it seems to be what they remember, an audience with us. I was always curious about the path of that film to the screen as far as, and I'm talking about Fatal Attraction. Um, I seem to remember there was something about the ending was changed. How soon before it was released was that changed? Quite a while. I would, I would say six months before or, so, or something. Well, we're all dubious about changing it, you know, because we like the idea of using a sort of, you know, the man and butterfly sort of Im imagery, you know, when she kills herself. Because Michael Douglas's fingerprints are on the knife that he puts down on the ledge before he leaves, you know, after that fight, you know, she tries to kill him. But because the fingerprints are on the knife, he, he gets the blame for her killing herself. She kills herself a la Madame, Madame Butterfly. And so 
she incriminates him essentially. And he goes, he is arrested. And then Ann Archer finds a tape where she says she's going to, to kill herself, which sort of lets him off. But it felt, you know, it felt like the movie was working until the last 10 minutes and then, and then it just felt a bit flat. So in the end, I'm, you know, people would think, oh, they're trying to, to just wheedle some more money out of it or whatever. But it really wasn't like that. It was just a question of trying to get something that worked better dramatically, worked better, worked better in terms of, of, of keeping their attention, really. Because it was just me and Stanley and, and Jerry Lansing, and we were just, you know, just saying to each other, when it went to San Francisco, I think, and just saying it's a pity because it really played well up to the last 10 minutes, 20 minutes. So maybe there was a better ending than we found out. I'm sure there was. In the end, I think it was the best way to go. Glenn was uh, the last cold out. She didn't want to do it at all. I mean, she was enraged at the, uh, at the I- idea of changing the ending. And she was concerned about uh, being a sort of one-note villainess, if you like. You know, somebody coming in or, or wielding a, a knife and, and threatening Michael, you know, and she saw it as a sort of cliche, but what got me excited was the idea, which I, I used in the movie, the idea of, of her coming in, instead of coming in and wielding this, this dagger over her head or whatever, but coming in and, and it's just sort of, it, it's hanging down at her side. And what I, li- and what I liked was the idea that she was sort of picking at her dressing gown, you know, like that gown thing. And it was going through the material. And because she was in another world, she didn't notice that she literally was was hurting herself and making herself bleed. So I thought what was really exciting about that was, was the jeopardy of it, the idea that this woman was so crazy at this stage that she didn't feel that this knife was cutting into her. And so I, I was excited because it was a way of doing it in a non-cliché way. I am so curious, though, how Jacob's Ladder came to you. Well, I, I spoke to Tracy Jacobs. There was a lady who was a, a literary agent, and I said, I'm getting such awful stuff, reading awful, awful scripts. Uh, and I said, what have you read over the last 10 years that, that, that is special and hasn't been made? And she said this one, and I read it. And the story reminded me of that Ambro, Ambrose Bierce short story incident at our creek i mean it was just a stunning little little film and obviously the whole thing happened in his head while while he was dropping you know while he was dropping while he was being hanged and so i i love that premise you know but obviously this was much more complex and and i think it's a movie that you probably have to see twice to sort of fully understand you know you're dealing with a man who is remembering his uh, marriage while he's dying in Vietnam and imagining a life with Jesse after the war. So that's a lot. I mean, I remember, you know, when the movie came out, a lot of critics were saying it was gobbledygook. And, I mean, literally. So, you know, it's something that that has, I think it's sort of grown as the the years, really, uh, the movie. And I literally talked to, to Bruce about it for, for a year. I mean, those were the days. I can imagine doing that now. I mean, we 
actually talked about it, about the premise, talked about the story for a year. Just talked and talked and talked. And, and we disagreed, really, over some fundamentals. He, he saw it in, in sort of, Jude, and it's a funny expression, I don't like it much, Judeo-Christian terms, you know. He saw hell and heaven in a traditional sense, equally angels and demons. And I was very anxious not to do a movie where, because it was familiar, because the imagery was familiar, it would, would lack in fear or menace. If you knew the imagery, if you'd seen the, the imagery before, if you knew the devil was a guy with a sort of a tail and, and, a, and a cleft hooves, and you know that the traditional idea of the devil, or equally, if heaven is, and I used to joke with Bruce, I used to talk about the, the Liberace version of, of, of heaven, clouds and, and pillows and, and this, uh, you know, and a, a, a Jacob Radling is a, a ladder that goes on forever, you know, this marvelous staircase. Um, so I wanted to root it. Uh, well, you know, when we dealt with the, you know, with the, with the demons, etc., I wanted to, it to be flesh-based. I wanted you never to get a, a clear look at it, because when you see it with clarity, there's no mystery and there's no, no fear. When you, when you, but when you can't quite grab at it, you know what I'm saying? Like, like I love the imagery of, of Francis Bacon's paintings, because they were smeared and, and blurred, and, and you thought of in unimaginable stuff going, under, going on underneath those blurs that your imagination is filling in. Like if, you can, if you could see it all, then there's, so that was the basics. See it all, there's no mystery. There's no danger. But it has to be something that's fleeting. And so that's where, what I, I did. I, and that image, that uh, blurred sort of uh, imagery that I did with, uh, by t- turning over the camera at four frames, that's four frames, and and getting the actors to move around so they'd blur, just sort of to sway around and then people would start watching it. But I think it worked well because it, was, because it wasn't digital done afterwards, where you really always, always, always know that, it's, that it has been done later, that it's, that it's an optical, it's an effect. And I think when it's, when it's, when it's not, it's much, so much more powerful. We didn't do, literally, we didn't know um, optical effects at all. But what, what was funny was that when you had a, a demon or somebody and, and it was blood, you know, shaking or whatever, it would look ludicrous at a second and silly at two-thirds of a second, but at half a second it worked and you couldn't get a, do you see what I'm saying? You couldn't get a fix on it. You thought, fuck, what, what the fuck was that? And, um, I mean, this is, you know, off, off, off the record with it, I mean, I mean, have you seen Nope? Well, I thought the Nope was, you know, I thought it was terribly good for about an hour. But when you saw that cabbage thing, when it's clear, then for me it didn't work. Then all of a sudden, you know, you're looking at a cabbage. You're looking at a, I don't want to, you know, it's just you're, you're, you're me. Um, so I, you know, I hope, I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, we'd have at a party and thing, we'd have a stunt, stunt man with, with like, like weird sort of, uh, I always called it thalidomide, you know, because there are that awful uh, things that happen to limb, limbs, you know, when they 
uh, women had taken uh, thalidomide uh, during, this was in the 50s, I think, or 60s, early 60s, maybe, when, when they were, when women who were pregnant took, took it in terrible deformities of her. Uh, so I thought that was a more interesting way to go than Hieronymus Boss, you know, which we've seen before. You know, I, I used imagery from Joel Peter Witkin, you know, one particular one was very startling. It was a man without any legs and a mask on over his head. But what, what was so interesting was it was a still picture marvelous. Because the head was in, was in a blur, it was like it was in, in movement, in, in torment, if you like. I used that image and had, had, his, uh, had the head move. So it was, as I say, it was really trying to try never to see things totally, but rather to have your imagination fill in a bit of it. Because that's the best, your imagination is always better than anything that I could do. Yeah, and I like the way that you introduced things was just the homeless guy on the train with the tail that you can just barely gl- get a glimpse of. Well, it was interesting because it's like a penis, really. And we started off, what you saw in the movie was it reversed. It sort of curls up the penis, if you like. Now, the way it was for real, it was, it, I don't know how it worked, but it something mechanical, you know, but, but it sort of shot out like an erection and it was kind of funny. Do you see what I'm saying? And, and, but when we did it in reverse, when we shot it in reverse, um, it worked because it was furtive, you know, it looked like this thing was trying to hide away, even though it looked like a penis in the end, it was sort of veiny and, but again, you couldn't quite get a handle on it. It's fascinating. I mean, I was lucky also, I had a, Alan Marshall was the terrific producer because when things didn't work out it would work out for me to be able to you know have a like i don't know a third of a day or something to rush out and do it again you know like guys who were hanging out of the the car you know that nearly ran him down in, in that kind of alleyway on the bridge early on you know that again that only only worked sort of very very quickly you know if if you were allowed time to take it in it didn't work you always had to fill it in with your imagination, part of it. Sixteen Where did you actually shoot the film? Oh, we shot in uh, we shot it in William. Just kind of thing in in Williamsburg. Um, we took an interior from from Williamsburg, and which was just too small to shoot in, and we added two feet every way, um, making it two feet wider and longer, whatever. And, but, either, but it was exactly the, the stuff. We took, I mean, in fact, I think we took the props from the, uh, from the apartment. It, it was just perfect, you know. That, and so we literally used the stuff from it. But it was just, in fact, it was just too small to, to shoot in on, on location. So we did it. We did that in, in the studio, which I, didn't, I never liked shooting in the studio. Really. But we did that. I was just watching the movie, funny enough, when you rang up. I remember when he's in that sort of hospital and, and the guy's saying, and he says, I want to go home. And he says, you are home. And he, and he says, you're dead. And he said, and he says, I'm alive. You know? The way he said it was, was just heartbreaking. And, and I remember sort of crying, watching him doing, looking out and seeing that the operator was crying as well. And I remember walking across the, parking lot afterwards with him and, and saying, uh, 
said to him, you were really good. And it was a long beat, and he said, I know. And it's a fabulous feeling, you know, when they... And I always feel them, that they've given a chunk of themselves. Literally have chipped off a bit of, of them. They'll never have back. You've got it. You've got it in your movie. And they'll never get it back. And, and that's a marvelous feeling, I think. There's another moment as well when he's lying in the bark after he's, they pulled all of the, the ice all over him. And his eyes, his eyes were bloodshot and eyelids and, and red and stuff. And he really did. I mean, look, I think today looking at it, he looked like he was in a out-of-body experience or something. He's extraordinary what he did with it, really. At the end of the movie, there was way more stuff. But, you know, we tested it. And the people were catatonic, you know, they were, because half of them didn't understand it anyway. Because the first time you see something like that, you know, I guess it would be, you know, tough to understand. But, but there was a whole sort of transformation sequence. That, one of two sequences. One was a, a sequence when he takes a kind of a LSD and, and then this monster comes through the, through the ceiling. And it was quite good. I mean, all we had was an eye. We used the eye. This eye, huge eye. And I think it worked quite well, but we didn't know whether to leave or leave it all in. And there's another one. Oh, there's another thing that was interesting when, when the transformation of Jesse, you know, when she really becomes essentially a demon, when she realized, he realizes that she's the devil, if you like. And, and there was a moment I remember I, I used a ballet dancer in a, in a black velvet bag, right? On, and I was shooting it on black. So I shot it, you know, for the longest time, it was dirt. It was a dancer in a bag. But there was about 20 frames, I would say. I remember looking at it and thinking, what the fuck is that? It became something else. And I used that bit in. It was, it was marvelous. But again, it's a matter of how long you use these things. You know, if you, you know, if the audience sees just too little, never too much talked about the conversations that you had with with bruce rubin i imagine those got pretty intense after a while i mean he's a very spiritual man i'm and i'm not really i mean he spent you know he spent a lot of time in india i mean he was a guru i don't know whether he was a guru himself he certainly lived with one or under one you know in some sort of a commune in i think in india i'm not particularly you know i'm I'm an agnostic, I guess. You know, I didn't think there's something else. I think it would be really so boring if, if, if it all stopped with a kind of a full stop when we stuff it, you know. Um, especially at my age now, I'm sort of more aware of it than I was. But I do think there's something. I think it's much too boring for there to be nothing. The world of somebody who sat down with a sense of humor and said, I'll make a toucan. Or I'll make a giraffe, or I'll make, or I'll make a, I'll make a, um, a seahorse. Be quite absurd to think that there isn't some being that is creating the seahorse with a, a sense of humour. You know what I mean? I mean, I mean, with wit. I mean, I don't believe that that's just an accident. Um, so yeah, you know, you know, we talk forever. As I said, I didn't know when to say this, but it was. But I remember sitting on the floor, one end of a quite a big room, and he was the other end. We were just sitting on the floor as well, leaning against the wall, and I was as well the other end. And, you know, just talking and talking, and 
then I saw stuff going around his head. I don't know how to describe it. Like, I suppose you'd say energy, but like sort of curly lines or something. It was something that was absolutely unexplainable. And that's going to make me sound instantly like a crackpot. So maybe you see but, but I saw it, and I, I'm a very pragmatic guy. And I told him, and he said there's a lot of stuff going on over you as well. It was some sort of energy. I don't fucking know what it was, but, but I remember being, being sort of fairly blown away by it. He was particularly annoyed about, about the ending, about him going up the stairs. I, I just like the idea that, that heaven, if you like, is your home. It, I just loved that as an idea. You know, that you one wasn't going to some, that say, the sort of Liberace version of going up into the clouds or whatever. I, li- I liked it being, you know, I liked the fact that a kid took him up the stairs because the kid had done it before, kid had been there before. And so the, the kid took over. I liked that, that it was rooted, that it wasn't, you know, something sort of mythical. And that applied to the whole movie, really. And it's been... You know, interesting because I remember during the AIDS crisis, I remember people, a couple of times, people contacting me and saying that they, that the movie had helped them with their partner who died or whatever. I guess that Meister Eckhart speech that Danny Aiello makes when he says the, you know, that the devils are if you accept them, the devils become angels, rather than, you know, if you're resisting them, they're, they're devils, demons. That was an interesting speech. I think, I think he, he was very important, I think, Danny Ireland. No, I'm good, thank you. What was the actual shoot like? I remember it was in winter, I think, most of it, and I, I remember, you know, water on, on the windows freezing up, creating sort of like uh, Icicles and things. It's like a no man's land, really. It was strange, really, because having decided not to do any effects afterwards, you know, not to add to anything. You see, I'd used that effect, that that blurred effect, before in a short film. So I sort of knew that that worked, you know, that, although I hadn't used it in quite the same way. Um, you know, that thing of, of getting the actor move around and sway around and, and then shoot while you're shooting at four frames, you know, so, so it's essentially blurring. And it looks malicious, obviously. I mean, you know, lighting is so important. Like, like at that party, you know, I, I mean, literally they were, you know, they were birds were on a string that somebody was waving around with a, on a stick. You know what I'm saying? I mean, literally they were real, they were just paper birds on, a, on the stick because it was... The, the lighting was intermittent, intermittent you know, that would strobe, it was strobe light. Again, you couldn't see it clearly, and so you got away with it. You know, like you got away with that tail thing between them, which was, which was, I would say, hilarious when we were doing it. And, you know, and, the, and the, um, the horn thing in our mouth, you know, and the last bit, obviously, is a, you know, it was like a, a mask of her, you know, it was a, a model of, and then you just ran the thing up through it out of her mouth but again it's so quick that you don't think it's not her if she wants good well we cast it forever we saw her early on and thought she was really good and then we went endlessly on we saw we saw everybody over yeah and then it kept on going back to her she died and sad she died very young no why i've forgotten why 
As part of the Vietnam footage, I think that worked rather well. You shot that down in Puerto Rico, is that right? Everybody who's been to play or lived in Puerto Rico knows that it's Puerto Rico because the, the sound of tree frogs. <laughs> I guess you don't get in uh, Vietnam. When Jacob's Ladder comes out, how is it received? With puzzlement. A lot of people said it was, was, was gobbledygook, and they were enraged by the ending, annoyed by the ending, somewhere. I mean, I mean, you know, I'm sort of exaggerating a bit. I mean, it was all disaster. But I do think it's a movie that you need to see twice, honestly. You know, because there's three time sequences, I guess, in history, or more, you know, with, with, with the, the death and, and the dying in Vietnam and the imagined life with Jesse afterwards and the remembered life of, of him and, and Gabe and his, his wife. I often wonder what I should have left all of the transformation stuff in at the end. Because I thought it was quite, I thought the shooting of it was quite interesting. The whole, you know, when he uh, has the, the LSD or whatever the hell it was, you know, when he's with the, the, the pharmacist. I, I think that's a good, good sequence, you know, when the stuff comes through there, the sequence. But, but I thought, you know, because of the trouble with understanding the picture, I think maybe, maybe it was good to have left it out. I don't know. Because they, the audiences were coming out catatonic. On top of that, they didn't understand. Remember Mario Castaro, who was the sweet, sweet man he, who produced it. And, and, and we, uh, we were going humming and hawing about uh, and, and the whole transition of, of Jesse, which I liked, for, you know, before he goes upstairs with, with, um, uh, with Gabe. Um, I remember him saying, I'll just leave it in. He said, they don't understand it anyway. <laughs> and I think I probably should have done, you know, fuck it. Who was that? A photograph of the hell of it. If a mother with a, a child, like she's lying with a child on a, on, on a bed, you know. Um, I forgot. Famous, famous picture. And I remember copying exactly with um, his wife, you know, in, in, the, in a sort of flashback sequence. So we, we were lucky to have um, a blank on his name, a home alone kid. Macaulay Culkin. Yeah, we weren't allowed to use his name. We, we did it before um, without something. But the father was very, he was not an easy man to deal with. How did they even try to market a film like this? Well, they marketed, they marketed it as a horror movie, which is probably a mistake. Mind you, I don't quite know how they would, would market it. You know, I think they, maybe they should have gone a little more delicate. They got, it's always good to get two or three Critics who like it, and or it was in those days. I don't think it's the same thing, you know, obviously. But to get somebody to champion it, if you did get that, it's always a great, with a movie like that, I think that's a great start. But I thought the um, sort of horror hospital thing worked well. We, we is, I think, we did the real hospital in Staten Island. I think we did most of it then. You probably did it all there. And those little guys, you know, that, you know, little. Dwarfs and things on the, and, and it was so nice working with them because they were so fucking thrilled to deal it. And and the guy, you know, the guy who was on that, sort of, the bad guy who was on the, the bed, you know, who, who didn't have any legs. He's, he was a beautiful kid. Again, he was he was just thrilled to be in the movie, and it was just such a nice guy. It's just people talk a lot about the wheel sticking on on the journey. Yeah, you know, put that. Out of balance, we made it 
so that they, they wasn't hitting the ground properly. So that sort of gave the Gurney a personality and made it a bit crazed. Suddenly, I mean, I love layers like that. Where, you know, when you add something that that sort of is surprising or strange, makes the scene more interesting. Mind you, I had I had an old guy with who was dressed in rags, who was uh, playing with a fish, this huge fish that was sort of uh, leaping around on the floor. I always think I should have put that in. Alan Marshall was a marvelous producer, as I said, but because all he was interested in was the movie being put up. You know, when when you had when the demons, I say, in the car looked stupid, and and then you know he would he would work out how I could do it again, just in a you know half a day or something. I'm curious about Deep Water, how that came to be. I just rewatched that one as well. Well, that's a you know it's a bizarre movie. I I mean because it was it was Patricia Highsmith and the the plot of of Deep Water, her Deep Water was was a man who was disenchanted with his wife because she was fucking around and took refuge in his, with his daughter, who he adored. But there was no real sexual involvement at all between them. So in the, in the end, her story was about somebody getting more and more pissed off with their wife because getting embarrassed by her. And then he bumps her off at the end. He killed her. And I thought... And Anise Carter often goes off with the police. And I thought it was more interesting, or, or more interesting, but what I wanted to do was to get a sense that there was a kind of complicity between the two, a weird. And and so that's what I tried to do, that and get a sense that she was half doing it for his benefit, and that jealousy, jealousy was exciting to him, but obviously destructive in the end, and, and, and an idiot. But I've always done, you know, I've done a lot of movies about jealousy. I think it's just an interesting. So that, you know, that's what I tried to do. I mean, then, you know, I don't want to get, I mean, if I start on, on this, this is major. I mean, I mean, it wasn't the best experience of my life, I've got to say. And that's the understatement of the year. But, but what I didn't want to do, what they were desperate to do, and maybe they were right, but I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to have a reason why this is this relationship was as it was. They wanted a scene where it was explained that said, okay, you can you can have your lovers, you can do what the fuck you want, but in the end you're gonna come back to me and and uh and I'm waiting. So essentially he was letting her do it. And I and I thought, well, where's the drama in that? And I, I thought it was more interesting. And I say I don't know what I like, but I thought it was more interesting to just throw the audience into the middle and and say, get on with that and understand that this is a strange relationship. But it was a choice. You know, I idealize it now. I love it now. Anyway, there's also scenes that I, I took out, think maybe I should have left in. I mean, the audience, for example, saw a lot of critics mostly saw the, the snails in sort of sexual terms. They saw it as, you know, these shiny things as she men. I know, you know what I'm saying? That was their sort of take on it. And it really wasn't that in the book anyway. I mean, and I had a, a scene in where the kids, you know, he lets to hold one of these, a little one, you know. And, I, and every, again, I, you know, people wanted me to take the snails out. And I, I thought that they were interesting just because it's strange. 
And, and why shouldn't he be fascinated by snails? I mean, that's in a book. What are you working on these days? Well, there's a, a project I do like called One Neck, which is about a serial killer coming to to a party in the Hamptons. And it's quite good. It should be, if I do it right, the, the audience should be watching it in a state of complete hysteria, sort of like Uncut Gems, you know, which is one of my favorite movies in the last 20 years. That feeling of very funny movie, but equally you're, you are looking over your shoulder the whole time for him, you know, that poor bastard is going um, you know, there's a lot of tension in it, and I like that. You know, I like the tension in that, in Reservoir Dogs, you know, when the guy's dancing around and you know he's going to lock that man's ear off. And, and you're feeling it, it's, it's terribly funny for one, but it's also ghastly as well. So I go see that somehow, that, that sort of mixture of, of, uh, of they say, horror and humour. That's tough to do, really. But he did it beautifully. Sound the Adam Sandman. Well, they boys, you know, the uh, director's very clever. Going back to reading interviews with you from 90s and, and earlier and later, I remember back in, gosh, I guess it was Starlog in 1990 when they were interviewing you about Jacob's Ladder, you said, oh, I want to do Lolita. And then there was a serial killer movie. Is this the same serial killer movie? Well, it probably is. Yeah, it goes back a long way. And also there's a movie called Silence that I've been desperate to do and, and I may have may have outstayed its welcome really nothing. It's just sort of a interracial love story with a with a, a race riot as a background. And in the winter, actually in Chicago, it's 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 very strong. But I don't know. Maybe it's not to be I was, I was very close to doing it with De Niro. We'll see. Well, Mr. Lyon, I can't thank you enough for the time that we spent together. I really appreciate this. If you need stuff, just ring me up. I'm happy to do it. I got any bad issues with your brother? I had her first. Our relationship was complicated. And it was all my fault. This guy's coding. Checking airways. It's his brother. Isaac's been dead for over a year. But I never saw his body. Now, I have a situation. I know. It sounds crazy. He's at my house right now with Sam. I just can't believe you're here. We thought you were dead. Maybe I was. You really got the perfect life here, don't you, big bro? Isaac. Isaac, you're bleeding. He's burning up. Trying to kill me? Isaac. My brother's not in a good way. I don't know what he got himself mixed up in. Jacob. You okay? You seem different. Hello? I think something. Father Isaac home. Are you certain it's him? Jacob. I'm hearing things. I'm seeing things. Faces. Hey, baby. What are you doing? Demons. They're coming after me. Because of Isaac. Jake, what is going on? Do you think I'm making this up? The only thing that burns in hell 
They're all in on it. Use the part of yourself that refuses to let go. You will see devils tearing your life apart. All right, we are back and we're talking about Jacob's Ladder and... So let me say this first. This is, like I was saying earlier, one of many I don't know that I'm dead type movies, but this is also like this weird moment of time when spiritualism was back at the movies. Like in 1989, you had Always. This year, you had, I mentioned Ghost, but you also had Joel Schumacher's Flatliners in 1990 as well. So it was like a, a really big time for the afterlife in American movies, which was kind of a, an odd thing and we just we go through those phases and everything and i don't i don't know what what it was in the air in 1990 where it was like okay now we're going to talk about the afterlife and what can happen because i think jacob's ladder 1990 would be a really good double feature with flatliners because it has that same nightmarish quality to it wow i totally forgot that came out the same year yeah and then oh, and they both also have like bad recent remakes <laughs> oh yeah you're right <laughs> I forgot about the remake of Flatliners. I did too. I didn't watch that one. I didn't even know that there was a remake of Jacob's Ladder until I started to do the research. And I was just like, oh, no, this just has to be called Jacob's Ladder. Because there's been a few movies that are called Jacob's Ladder that aren't, you know, this story. But no, 2019, there was a remake that came out that apparently it premiered on Dish Network. So it didn't get a theatrical release as far as I know, and nor should it. I wanted to cut this movie some slack. I wanted to like it, but it felt like they just kept making bad decisions and just like giving Jacob a brother. And they did have, well, Samantha and then uh, Annie, who also plays an angel. So Annie Angel, but it was tough, man. I think... Steven, you said that you watched in like 15 minute increments just because it was so hard to get through. Yeah. I, well, I had to watch it 15 minutes at a time. Like, again, I don't want to be negative towards movies because they're very difficult to make. But it's like, again, like Mike was saying, it's like there are just these movies sometimes that get remade and you're just like, I get why you'll remake some movies. I totally get it. And like, you know, for instance, when I heard they were remaking Evil Dead, like, how are you going to do that? And then I saw a Q&A with the director afterwards. He was like, yo, Sam Raimi gave up because Sam Raimi was at his height. He gave them all this time to make the movie and gave them extra time to make the effects work. And then when you watch the, the movie, you're like, wow, this is a good, I think it's a great remake because Sam Raimi put care into remaking that movie and gave them everything, you know, and it worked. But when I see, like, for instance, Martyrs remake was on my Tubi, and I decided to watch, like, 20 minutes of it, the remake, because I was curious. And again, like, within 20 minutes, they start explaining things. And I'm, in my mind, I'm like, who is this movie made for? Is it, like, for some 16-year-old girl or one 16-year-old kid to, like, stumble across and be like, wow, this is great, and without knowing the remake? Because, like, I don't get why certain movies get re like a movie like this get remade and i looked it up and it got announced in 2013 i had no idea this this remake was coming out yeah and yeah so tw 2013 this was announced and uh yeah and, and yeah when i watched it i could only handle it a little at a time and i think it was from that opening sequence <laughs> immediately i knew i was like oh no 
feel bad because I like the lead actor. He was in this movie I saw on HBO where he goes to Vegas and cheats on his girlfriend with Hillary Swank. And then she ends up being a cop that fucks with his life. And I, he was awesome in that movie. I forgot what it was called, but I li- I enjoyed it. It was like a nice, you know, yeah, it was pretty cool. He's a cool actor. I like him. And I was just, I just felt bad for him because this movie has no atmosphere. That's the problem. It just doesn't, has no, at- when you're making a movie, a remake of a movie that had such, you know, it was so visceral. You, you know, you could smell the movie. You know, you feel kind of grimy at times watching that Jacob's Ladder, but this one just, it couldn't, ca- it didn't capture that. And it had more of a David Lynch, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive type twist versus a Jacob's Ladder twist. The bathtub scene, it's not even Jacob going in the bathtub. It was like him putting his brother in the bathtub. And I was like, <laughs> well, that's the thing is that, so sorry, first off, it was Afghanistan. It wasn't Iraq. So my bad on that. Another Middle Eastern country that the U.S. has no right to be in anyway they split Jacob basically into two characters. They split him into Jacob and Isaac. And so it's him and his brother. And yeah, his brother comes in and you're just like, oh no, his brother's supposed to be dead. And so it's like, all right, is his brother dead? Oh no, maybe Jacob's dead. And maybe, because I want to say that at one point you find out that Isaac has married Jacob's girlfriend and maybe they would never were married. Maybe Jacob never got in the picture at all. Maybe he was just jealous of his brother. They overthought it. I'm now trying to overthink it to make it make sense. Yeah, me, me too. Because I wanted to like it also. And I don't like, yeah, because we don't know what happened behind the scenes. We don't know what, you know, at least they were trying to do something different. And I kind of, the guy they hired for the brother, you know, I can give him some props too in his performance because he was unsettling. But it just overall, it just, just for me, it didn't, it didn't work. And especially the ending and I don't know. I feel bad, you know, because I don't want to be bad on something. But it was a rough. Movies can be bad. It's part of life. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You I, I just tiptoe around it, pussyfoot yeah. around the fact that movies can be can be terrible. Yeah, like I put it up with the Martyrs remake in a way of just being like, what you know, like who is this aimed for? Is it just using the name to make money from it? Because you know, I don't know. It was it was it was tough. You Did even th- make a few extra shekels from it? I'm sure he must have. Well, there's that then. Yeah. Did you did you sit through it in one in one screening? I mean, one sit through, Mike. I watched the first maybe half hour of it, and then I turned it off. And then I ended up going back, and I kind of was watching it at work, so not giving my full brain power to it, and just like kind of having it out of the corner of my eye, and just going, "Wait, what are they doing now here?" And yeah, it was. I mean, there were occasionally there were little things where I was like, "Oh, well, that was a little nice nod to the original," but it was like. Do you want to be the original? Do you want to be a brand new thing? And they really couldn't decide whether they wanted to stick with the original script or if they just wanted to move past it and do something completely different. And I think they would have been better off to do something completely different. In fact, I think even if they just didn't call this Jacob's Ladder, it might have been something better for them because it's so not related to the Tim Robbins movie. Jerry's Stepladder. I absolutely agree. If it was called something different, because it was because they did the train scene like later in the movie, but instead of a tail, the guy had messed up feet. His feet were weird, like he had sores in the bottom of his feet, and they didn't do the dance. I was like, wow, they didn't do the, the classic dancing with the devil scene. But but what they did was it had Jake having sex with the devil. That because 
Yeah, because which was weird towards the ending. I guess that was their interpretation of it. But well, if if Jesse is the devil, then he had sex. Tim Robbins had sex with her too. But uh, that's up to interpretation. Yeah, yeah. You get those neat moments like when you see Jesse with the full black eye contact type of thing going on, where she's like, "Whoa!" And really, just again, just like for a quick second, you yeah, see flash that. out. It's like okay, we don't need to linger on this kind of stuff. Jacob's Ladder 2 is just like what you said earlier. We had this 1980s war boom and, you know, Platoon, you know, I think when Platoon came out, it kind of, for me, being a, a kid back then, it made, like, my dad watched all these war movies and I didn't care about it, but when Platoon came out, it, it kind of made war movies mainstream, it felt like. I wanted to watch it because it had Charlie Sheen in it and it had these cool people in it. And then, and then you know, you had Good Morning Vietnam and Full Metal Jacket and Hamburger Hill all coming out in 1987, and Michael Dugakoff, platoon leader in 88, Casualties of War. And then what's interesting is that Casualties of War in 89, what is this war doing to people? And then you have Jacob's Ladder that caps this whole Vietnam boom where it just gets even more into it. It's interesting how we start from platoon and it kind of ends with Jacob's Ladder. I don't know. So like when it came out, it kind of, because we were so, had all these Vietnam movies, it was like also this nice... I don't know. It was just like you kind of watched this genre, you know, kind of morph and then end with Jacob's Ladder. What genre is Jacob's Ladder? I guess ultimately you could call it a horror film, but there's political thriller. There's, you know, some eroticism going on. There's, you know, spiritualism. There's just so many different aspects to this. And then the question was too, back in 1990, how the hell are they going to market this thing? Are they going to market it as a straight horror film where people that are expecting like a, you know, Friday the 13th, Jason, Freddy type of thing come in here and they're just like, well, this isn't horror. You know, like, what is your brand of horror? This to me is much more of that horror of like, you know, your repulsions or something where it's just like, okay, what you're seeing isn't real. And now you have to figure out what really is going on. Absolutely. And I am obsessed with box office. So I was kind of curious how it opened. And it actually opened at number one when it first came out. It made seven million. Second place was Sybil Rivalry, Sibling Rivalry with that actress that just passed away from Cheers. I forgot. Sorry. I'm, oh, I'm spacing on her name. I feel so oh, bad. Uh, Christy Yes. And then third place was Ghost, which already made 180 million at that point. White Palace was number four and Marked for Death was number five. So it was number one when it came out. And then you talking about horror next week, Child's Play 2 bumped it out of first place. So I guess people wanted a more lighthearted horror film. Stabby, 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 stabby father. Yeah, more because this is like, you know, because like I said, I think I feel like this is a, I mean, I think this, this feels like a 70s movie that we got like 10 years later. So I don't think the new audience being trained with nice 80s movies wasn't, you know, like this was a, this was a, you know, this was pretty, you know, 70s audiences were used to such hardcore endings and stuff like this. I don't think maybe the audience in 1990 wasn't expecting this. I have a really great story that I was just telling my, a friend of mine the other day that I'm about to do a podcast about Jacob's Ladder. And he's like, I'm reading it. He's like, yeah, is that with Robin Williams? I'm like, no, no, you're thinking of something else. So... He was thinking about Jacob the Liar. You know, there's this movie, Jacob the Liar. It's a similar title. But then he started thinking and he, he went back. But he said, it was like, wait, but isn't the movie with something spiritual in it, but something about the Holocaust? So he started going back and he realized that like 
20 years ago, he was working at a, at a video store in Jerusalem and people like teachers used to come and, and like rent a movie to show on like uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day. And apparently he just realized that 20 years ago, it was, he tried to recommend Jacob the Liar to someone, but he gave him Jacob's Ladder instead. <laughs> oh God. So at some point 20 years ago, some poor classroom full of kids in Jerusalem who were sitting down to watch a Holocaust movie. And five minutes into it, it was it, it was uh, Full Metal Jacket meets meets Save It Private Ryan meets the Texas Chainsaw oh, Massacre. Oh shit! Oh my god! Imagine. So that's Those my friend Laurent. That's his story. I'm glad that you guys brought up Clarence at Owl Creek Bridge as well. Apparently, both Bruce Joel Rubin and Adrian Line were familiar with that, and they both kind of like met on even ground when it came to that particular movie or that particular story, but the, I, I didn't realize that it had been, it was done by, I want to say there was a movie version of it in like 1919 or something. It was like really super early. And then there was, oh, sorry, it was, it was King Vidor and it was 1929. So not 1919, 10 years after that. And then it would be done again as a short in 62 and that's the version i'm very familiar with they actually showed speaking of showing things in class they actually showed us occurrence at owl creek bridge in high school i guess because we were studying american literature and we were talking about ambrose bierce and so this is like one of bierce's most famous stories it was a french film but no dialogue so twilight zone ended up picking it up and they kind of put rappers with Rod Serling at the beginning and end, and then they turned it into a Twilight Zone episode. And so I think that so many people are familiar with this particular story via that Twilight Zone episode. I had no idea about this at all. It wasn't until I started looking into it for this episode where I kept seeing that pop up. And then I watched the short, I found it online and it was, yeah, kind of, yeah, it was, I already knew the ending, unfortunately, but totally does feel like something they'd show to a class in the 80s, pull out the projector, string the film. Because I've watched some weird shorts too in class. I wish I remembered. One was really, a couple of them were pretty disturbing, you know? And I was like kind of shocked by them. Like I remember one I watched where there's this guy hanging out with his dying soldier for like 10 minutes of the short. And then at the ending, he finally kills the guy. And then right when he stands up, there's two soldiers coming up the ridge with something to carry him away. <laughs> like they showed some and i had one substitute teacher that literally like if he had us for a week he'd just throw on a movie like one time he threw apocalypse now on and and and, and roman polanski's macbeth which kind of blew my mind i'd never seen it before <laughs> in class he's like hey, here you go they used to show the wave in schools but they stopped do you know about the wave no what is that, is that one? you don't know about it is that peter weir movie no, it's a movie. Oh, I'm thinking a different it. one. That's the last I'm sorry, wave. Yeah. yeah, last wave. Yeah, sorry. It's a, but it's a famous real life thing that was made into a made for TV movie later. Let me see who directed it. Alexander Grasshoff. Uh, I don't know. Bruce Davison is in it about this charismatic teacher who. It really happened in real life. Um, I don't want to spoil. I don't know if I should spoil the ending for you now because the whole point is that it has a serious <laughs> ending. I'll spoil it. I'll spoil it. He starts sort of a cult type following with his students he tells them about this great new wave that's going to come and you know and he gives them ranks and he and they all get super excited and this this all really happened and then at the end like after months of this he whips them up into this whole fascist group 
and he shows, and he's, he's gonna, I'm gonna show you the picture of our new leader who's gonna lead us to this great new world. And it's, and he shows him a picture of Adolf Hitler. And they made it a made for TV movie that's super effective and everything. And they used to show it to kids. Uh, in Israel, I know they used to show it. A lot of people got their minds blown by this movie. And sadly, they stopped showing it. Maybe if they kept on showing it, uh, we wouldn't be where we are today, literally being turned into a fascist country as we speak. If news covered it for you, but Israel is, uh, yeah, right now, the courts are going to be abolished and uh, not oh, abolished, boy. but yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a very nice little fascist coup happening right now. A judicious coup, a judicial coup, coup, yeah. Well, anyway, fun times. Yes, I had heard of it, but I didn't pay attention. My, I'm doing a documentary about movie novelizations, and the director posted on our novelization feed every day is a new novelization. He posted that they did a novelization for The Wave. I, I just, you, I just, wow. Yeah, I had no idea about that movie, what it was about, but I just know that the novelization is written by Todd Strasser, who wrote Ferris Bueller's Day Off novelization and like and Bill and Ted. Which I read. Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Oh, you did read that? Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's why I know that little old lady who's driving there at the end with the beehive that she was earlier in the film at the bank when Ferris was trying to like, what was it, break his trust or something to take out all the money to pay for the big day off. Oh, really? I didn't read the novelization. Do you know the novelization explains that they had like, he had two brothers. I mean, he had a brother and sister that were cut out of the movie because when Janie's walking around the house escaping Mr. Mooney, there's children's drawings all over the fridge. And you're like, who does those? And it's just the two kids that were cut out of the movie. I had no idea about the old lady. Oh, look at that. Maybe I should re- check you out. <laughs> <laughs> Still remember yeah. it from back in like 89 when I read it or something. Yes, so. that's, that's, that's the beauty of them. That's so cool. Anyway, there's a wave novelization. I didn't realize I should have paid more attention to that book when I was posting it. That's so cool. I didn't know that was with it. Now I got to watch this grass off version. So I'm excited, quote, question mark, excited too. I mean, it sounds great, but it also sounds horrific. An ABC primetime drama. Crazy. There's also, a, if you want a lighter, lighter thing, then there's a dollop episode about the real event. You know the podcast, The Dollop? Mm-mm. No, no. Ooh. Only losers listen to podcasts. Oh, the dollop is great. I can't recommend the dollop highly enough. It's so funny. Well, it sounds very much like the Stanford prison experiment, where it's like we're going to put half the guys as prisoners, half the guys as you know in uniform, and then we'll just see how it breaks down. Yeah, a little bit. Except it. I mean, yeah, it was completely insane. But it's if you listen to the whole story, the, the teacher like he tried it a little bit and was he like made it up as he went along. He didn't necessarily have this end game to begin with. Is there anything else we want to talk about Jacob Slatter? There's one tiny detail that I noticed in the deleted scene with a ceiling demon and everything. Uh, it cuts to some flies trapped in cobwebs. And right away after that, Tim Robbins goes, uh, help me. So I don't know if that's a coincidence, but it seemed like a fly <laughs> reference. I didn't notice. That's interesting. The cobweb, yeah, because the cobweb is, is, the, is the thing that we notice before he goes in the shower, after he goes in the shower and it cuts back to him and now I'm in the rain's falling on him. He's staring up at a spider web in that scene. And that's a beautiful shot, the way that they rack focus to it. Ah, gee, yeah. And the other thing is, I don't know, it's pretty random, but just recently, it's like a very flattering uh, comparison to Jacob's Ladder. movie I just watched recently was the new Shyamalan movie, uh, Knock at the Cabin. You guys, have you heard about it or seen it? 
heard about it and I know it's already available on demand after just like a couple weeks. It's not, I don't recommend it. It is very well directed. I mean, you got to give him props that just in terms of putting a movie together, he's super talented, but uh, it's basically a movie that is very religious at its core because it just presents the characters with a, basically, do you want to save your family or save all of mankind? And it's like, okay, so it's the, it's a, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a kind of premise that only a religious person could possibly relate to because it's this mumbo jumbo type thing. But I like how Jacob's Ladder deals with all sorts of, all sorts of religious themes, but it doesn't does it in such a way that there's something in it for everybody. Yeah, I mean, as an atheist, I'm just like I'm fascinated by this stuff, and it, I wasn't like, oh, yeah, Christian mumbo jumbo claptrap kind of stuff, which you know I see so often, or it's just like, okay, whatever. But this one, yeah, I didn't feel offended or on the outside looking in kind of thing. Yeah, it's not hitting you, hitting you over the head like a Christian movie would. Though those are a lot of fun. I'm, I'm so curious <laughs> to see the new uh, Left Behind movie, just because those things are just such garbage and they're so so funny. Well, thank you so much, guys, for stopping by. So, and even Stephen, Stephen, what's the latest with you? Um, I'm finishing, just finishing right now as we talk, documentary called Sharksploitation, hopefully out this summer about the history of sharks in cinema. And we are going to be starting our podcast again. Uh, Josh Miller, the co-writer of Sonic the Hedgehog movies and Violent Night, him and I do a podcast called Best Movies Never Made. And you can find us on Twitter at Never Made Film. Yeah, we do a podcast about movies that were never made and we're going to be returning soon we were just on a little hiatus because he had some script deadlines and i had to finish this movie but yeah those are our my two things and also making documentary on novelizations as i mentioned earlier jim coons is directing please follow us on titan film on twitter and indeed how about you well as always i'm doing subtitles for your favorite neighborhood streaming giant into hebrew so if you're watching in hebrew enjoy and Raising my daughter and protesting against the fascist takeover. That's how I spend my uh, free time. Very noble cause. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Devil or angel, I can't make up my mind. Which one you are, I'd like to wake up and ride. Devil or angel, there whichever you are, I miss you. Will 
still here? It's over. Go home. Go.